What's up? This is Nikki D with Medium Plus. I lead a group here in Seattle called the Blind Tasting Buddies, and we host tastings and field trips on the regular. Our most recent field trip was to the Westland Distillery for a tour led by their awesome team member, Dave McCohen. Dave took us through the entire distilling process, starting with heirloom grains, which are carefully guided through the steps of brewing, distilling, blending, and aging. Personally, I learned a ton and took away a lot from the visit. Uh, The Westland Peated Whiskey is a personal favorite, which uses Pacific Northwest peat to influence the character of the final spirit. Today's podcast is a recording of our tour with Dave dropping some serious knowledge throughout. This episode of Medium Plus is edited and mixed by Chris Barr. Find him online at medium.plus slash chris. To learn more about the Blind Tasting Buddies group and join our future tastings or field trips, visit medium.plus slash buddies. And without further ado, here's our tour with Dave. Cheers. So single malt whiskey uh, means three different things. The first word single means one distillery, uh, solely derived from one distillery. So if there was another distillery across the street and we took a barrel of theirs and a barrel of ours and put them together, and put our label on it, Westland, it would no longer be a single malt whiskey, it would be a blended malt whiskey. Um, So Johnny Walker, Dewar's, about 90% of the whiskey market worldwide is blended whiskeys. So that's how the Walker family and the Dewar's family started out. They were grocers and mercantiles in Scotland, and they would buy barrels from different farms that had stills uh, and sell the whiskey in their stores. And eventually it really got popular and they started blending the barrels from various farm stills together and selling it with their label on it. And that's really where whiskey got its start several hundred years ago. Single malt whiskey is a relatively new phenomenon in terms of Scotch whiskey, uh, Scottish whiskey or malt whiskey. Uh, really didn't evolve until like the 1950s when distillers started putting out solely their product. Um, so the second word malt means solely derived from malted barley. Um, Canadian whiskeys are most commonly just blended whiskeys, not blended malt whiskeys, uh, which kind of pairs in with the final word whiskey. Whiskey means uh, any cereal grains that have been distilled and aged in barrels. So you can use corn, you can use rye, you can use barley. Um, some bourbons are also weeded, so there's weeds in. Uh, there's some really weird craft distilleries that do uh, quinoa. Uh, you, can, you can use millet, sorghum, rice. Um, so it's any cereal grain distilled and aged in barrels. Uh, so Canadian whiskeys are typically just blended whiskeys. Um, typically they're going to take neutral grain spirit and then blend whiskeys, uh, very heavy rye influence from various distilleries, blend them together. Uh, so it could be part corn, part rye, part neutral grain spirits, and then they'll add caramel coloring to make it kind of uh, for continuity. And uh, that's for the they most don't part. have like the labeling law that we would have our, for our whiskeys and bourbons here. They can just say it's a whiskey, they don't have to put this is on it, they can use any blend of cereal grains that they want. They yeah. don't have any restrictions. Yeah, uh, you know, the world really went through uh, a really impressive whiskey renaissance uh, the past couple decades, and everyone except Canada really caught on to it. They've just always kind of done their thing their way, which is great. I mean, uh, you know, there's some really interesting whiskeys out of Canada, but you know, they really didn't rethink uh, their approach to it, uh, like Japan or like uh, the America has. Um, in fact, single malt whiskey in America is a relatively new phenomenon. In Scotland and Ireland, that's what they've always done. Uh, Japan really since the 1920s. 
historically in America, we've made whiskey uh, out of rye or bourbon, which, like I said, to be called a bourbon, it has to be 51% corn or more. So the Scotch-Irish, even the German and the Dutch, moved over here and immigrated, and what they discovered was the natives were growing maize or corn. And so instead of trying to uh, force barley to grow on the East Coast, what they did is they just figured out how to distill corn. Uh, and after the Whiskey Rebellion in 1791, the government kind of, to settle the, the rebellion, kind of gave a lot of the rebels uh, land down the Ohio River Valley uh, outside of Pennsylvania, and so that's where they settled, and that's where they started distilling. And so the port that they would send the whiskey out of and down the Ohio and then down in the Mississippi to the port of New Orleans was stamped where it was departed from, which was Bourbon County. Uh, so all the barrels were stamped Bourbon, and that's where the name comes from because there's tons of places in Kentucky named after French royalty. Uh, there's Bourbon County, there's uh, Lafayette, uh, which is pronounced Lafayette in Kentucky. Uh, there's Versailles, uh, which is pronounced Versailles. Versailles. Uh, I learned that the uh, hard way. Yeah, I moved here from Tennessee, so it, we, in Tennessee we kind of bastardized everything. There's a Santa Fe, Tennessee, but it's Santa Fe. Uh, so. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, that's historically what we've done in the United States is rise in bourbons. Um, but here in the Pacific Northwest, like I said, we grow tons of barley. And um, the idea of an American single malt whiskey really came about about 10 years ago. And in fact, it's still not even recognized by the federal government yet. I was going to say, you don't have your own classification here yet, do you? For no. For single malt, it's um, always been considered, like you said, something that came from the United Kingdom. Right. Um, so you guys are doing something pretty cool here, like doing your own thing. Yeah, it, you know, from a Eurocentric standpoint, this was this area of the country was really the final frontier. Like we pushed our way across the continent, blazing a, a new frontier all along the way, and then we ran out of land. It was the end of the earth, uh, and so people here really were, you know, doing things on their own terms and kind of uh, blazing a new trail. Uh, and sort of that's essentially what we're doing in the whiskey world because you know uh, there are no rules for us. Because we don't have guidelines to follow, like to be classified as a bourbon, it has to be 51% corn, it has to be aged at least two years, it has to be produced in the United States, and it has to be aged in a new oak barrel. You can't reuse the barrel over again. And typically they'll ship them over to Scotland and they'll age Scotch whiskey. Uh, Some Scotch producers believe that the only reason bourbon exists is for the barrels. their barrels to then go over to Scotland. For yeah, yeah, there's a, a joke between uh, bourbon distilleries and uh, Scotch distilleries, and they say, you know, bourbon guys say, you know, you have the barrel after you take all the flavor out of it, and the Scotch guys will say, well, you, you took all the harshness off the barrel, so now we can use it. You just seasoned it more. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just different approaches. <laughs> um, so you I've, guys don't char your oak or anything like that, you're just using new oak. We get our barrels from uh, independent staves out of Missouri. Uh, okay. There's two independent staves locations, one in Lebanon, Missouri, and one in Lebanon, Kentucky. Oh, weird. <laughs> uh, there's also 11 in Tennessee, but that's where Cracker Barrel comes from. Uh, uh, so, uh, the one in uh, Missouri sources all their wood from Missouri up through Minnesota. It's slow growth American oak, all the rings on the tree are really close together because winter comes quicky, uh, quickly. Um, and so it makes for more porous wood, uh, which is really conducive to aging whiskey. Um, the one in Kentucky is basically occupied supplying wild turkey for predominantly with their barrels. But we also use, in total on our rack house, we have 41 different types of barrels. Uh, I know it sounds overwhelming. I'm still trying to figure out exactly the difference between a lot of them. 
Uh, there's, you know, new oak barrels that like this one is a Cooper's Reserve. We have another that's a Cooper's Select. You can get your barrels uh, in different various char levels and toast levels. We have Madeira casks, Sauterne casks, uh, Sherry casks. Uh, oddly enough, we have a few Tabasco casks because Tabasco is aged in ex-bourbon barrels. No way. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was an April Fool's re release we put out a few years back called Inferno. So it was a uh, whiskey aged in Tabasco. Did it have some spice to it? Overwhelming spice. It's nothing but capsaicin. Is it any good? I like it, but I like spices. Okay. Uh, no. So, are, are the um, are the barrels toasted or charred or Both. either, depending mm -hmm. on which? You said you have many different kinds. Right? Yeah, you can get your toast levels on a low to high scale and your char levels on a low to high scale. Uh, and we commonly like our char levels. You can get on a level one, which is very light char, to a level four, which is really really heavily charred. Uh, we typically use ones and threes, uh, but there are a couple fours. For example, this barrel right here, because it's a Cooper's Reserve, is heavily toasted but lightly charred, uh, as opposed to lightly toasted and heavily charred. And What's, what is toasting versus char? Uh, well, what, what happens when you toast a barrel is you're caramelizing wood sugars, and so it's going to impart a, a much sweeter notes because of the caramelization of the wood sugars and rosins. Uh, so as the whiskey ages, um, it's going to be pulled into the wood, it's going to bond with those flavor molecules and compounds, and then be pushed back out. Um, that's why they make bourbon in Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, it's a continental climate. Corn is very oily, uh, it's really viscous. Um, malt whiskey, by contrast, is half the amount of oil, uh, and, it's, and it makes for a much more fragile spirit. It's much more delicate, so you can, if you try to make a malt whiskey in Kentucky, uh, you would have to be very careful aging it because it would just get ravaged. Um, in Kentucky, the summer gets hot as hell and really humid, and the winters get really, really cold. So if you want to think of the barrel as it sits and ages, it breathes like a lung. And so as it uh, gets hot, it's going to expand, and as it gets cold, it's going to contract. So it's essentially breathing as it ages. And as it does that, it's going to pull whiskey into the wood and push it back out of the wood. And that's how whiskey gets a lot of its flavor and its color. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. and how much... Um, What's the word? The angel share. I don't know what the technical word yeah, would be, but the it. angel share. Like how much of that about like when you're aging your bourbon or your, your whiskey, like about how much of that is going to be gone by the time you get back out? Because you don't blend your barrels, right? We do. You do blend your barrels, just yep. only all in the same area. So it's also single malt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, single malt doesn't mean one barrel. Single right. cask does. Okay, so you're blending your casks. Mm -hmm. Like Solera system sort of. like. Yeah, it's, it's not a Solera system uh, like a sherry or a wine would be. Um, it's more static. Um, the barrels, once they're filled, they sit and they will age, and then we'll dump them. Uh, and then we, we reuse a lot of our new oak too. We use ex-bourbons, we use second full Westlands. Um, like I said, because there are no rules governing how to make an American single malt, we're experimenting with all yeah. four ingredients of the whiskey. You, know, you have malt, water, yeast, and oak. Um, we're experimenting with the oak, like I was saying, the Gary Oak's a local species of oak, mm -hmm. uh, so we're exploring, exploring terroir in terms of oak. Uh, we use a variety of different types of malt. Um, in Scotland, every distiller uses one type of malt, uh, which is great. It makes a very you know, abundant world of whiskey, uh, but you, know, you guys are familiar with wine. The world would be a boring place if everyone used the same type of grape. So why, why the hell are we doing this with malt? 
Right. Uh, so we use a variety of specialty malts, uh, and we also use a very uncommon yeast in terms of uh, the whiskey world. Everyone in Scotland uses a distiller's yeast called the M strain. Great for making whiskey, doesn't impart a whole lot of flavor on the whiskey. We actually use a different yeast, um, which is sort of our, helps with our signature flavor, and it's what you're smelling right now when you walked in. Is that still Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or is it a different species of, of yeast that you're using? It's a brewer's yeast. We actually use uh, a Saison uh, yeast, Belgian Saison. Cool. Which makes for all the fruity esters that you smell yeah. when you walk in. I was gonna say, like, all I've been getting, like, I was just telling her, like, now that it's been sitting in here for a minute, there's so many lovely citrus things that are coming out, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, you get that's citrus, very unique. Yeah, you get berries. Like, you wouldn't uh, be getting that really on a, on a single malt scotch. Like, you're not gonna pick that up on the Freud, but, like, this is really interesting because there's so much happening. Yeah, it, and we actually experimented with, I think, around 27 different strains of yeast. Wow. Uh, Matt, our master distiller, is like a freak about flavor and always has kind of been. Even as a 10-year-old, he wanted to know why a prime rib tasted the way it did at a restaurant. And his mom made it, it tasted different. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like a knock on his mom's cooking. She's I a great cook. Uh, so the, the place he was educated in Scotland, what was it called? Harriet Watts School. And that's like where people go to learn how to make stuff. At the time, it was the only place I think you could get a master's in distillation. Wow. wow. I didn't even get a master's in I didn't either. That's why I'm like really fascinated about that education. That's so cool. Yeah, as a teenager, you wanted to know um, how you get vodka out of a potato, and so he built a still in his bedroom closet. And his mom, his mom came in with laundry one day and found like all these like you know tubes and things, bubbling pipes. And she actually thought he was making meth. And he's like, Mom, no, I'm just trying to figure out how to how distillation works. <laughs> and she was actually like really relieved. <laughs> uh, both of them, I think, used to work at the old Olympia plant, so uh, they were, you know, they had some familiarity with the brewing arts. Sure. Uh, and he took this love of distilling into college, and he was at UW uh, pursuing a degree in economics and distilling out of his dorm room and selling. Pooch out of the storm <laughs> for like 10 bucks a gallon. What a cool guy. Um, and he decided to drop out and then enroll at Harriet Watt School. That's and, awesome. Uh, That's so cool. So he's very particular about flavor and everything that, you know, like the wall says, thoughtfully made. Everything we do is very uh, particularly done for a specific reason. Is he still involved in the process? Yeah, um, so much in the, not in the everyday production. Um, but he still always has final approval on products. Um, you know, he doesn't do any the blending so much anymore, but he does have his hand in it, and he always has to stamp uh, and give the final okay for anything we release. Right. Uh, a lot of the time he's jet setting. Um, right now, I think he's in Singapore uh, with a Remy conference for all of their Asian sales force. Uh, wow. So he gets around right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, had a, I had a whiskey related question of I see straight on. Whiskey bottles sometimes, the term straight, like straight rye, straight burn, is that, um, what is that? Straight is going to mean, uh, I'm trying to remember the specific uh, nuance for, I know like bottled and bond means it's got to be 100 proof, it has to be all from uh, barrels produced on the, during the same season by the same distiller. Straight typically is going to mean it's not going to be diluted down with other stuff. Uh, it's not going to have caramel coloring in it. Uh, it's not going to, um, you know, like ours says no caramel coloring added. 
basically. Yeah, I mean, after Prohibition, I mean, even during Prohibition, you had a lot of people still distilling and really kind of bastardizing the products. And you know, a lot of time, you didn't know what you were getting. It could be just like industrial ethanol with color, caramel coloring added. Um, and like I said, even uh, if, you're, if your whiskey doesn't say no caramel coloring added, chances are they added a little bit to maintain consistency. Is that a regulated term, though? Can anyone put straight on their whiskey just because it's like a... With straight bourbon, uh, it's going to mean it's made in Kentucky. Uh, it's from one distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, a lot of whiskeys that you see on the market these days, you're like, oh, I've never even heard of this distillery. This is cool. It's got, kind of got like a rustic looking label and you're like, oh, it must have been around forever. I've just never heard of it. Chances are actually it's a new brand. And what they're doing is buying sourced whiskey. Uh, and sourced means you're buying from another distillery and then putting your label on it and selling it around. Uh, Bullet, Templeton, Angels Envy, uh, Nictors for the longest time. They started out as sourced whiskeys. Um, in fact, I was doing the bourbon trail once and I called the bullet number I, I googled and some nice southern lady answered and I was like I just want to come by and check out the distillery and she's like oh honey we don't offer tours uh it's because they didn't have a distillery at the time they were buying from four roses stock for the bourbon and their rye was coming from uh, a plant called MGP in Lawrenceburg Indiana right across the Ohio well they're huge now too like, yeah they just everywhere. now built their distillery it's only a couple years old but they bought all their whiskey before that That's yeah it was so sourced crazy. whiskey there's a lot of brands that kind of come out of, is it Indiana Lawrenceburg. where most of it comes from? Yep. It's right across the river from Kentucky. Oh. And it's an old Seagram's distillery. But actually, you know, we even have samples uh, in the lab in the back that are unaged spirits. And they say MGP, 95% uh, rye grain bill. And it's bullet rye. Uh, because they distill several different grain bills, different ratios of grains, and depending on what you're wanting as a we were starting a new distillery and we're like, oh, we're looking for a grain bill that's going to be, our current grain bill that is aging in stock right now is this much corn, this much rye, this much barley. And so you find a comparable grain bill that they're doing, you buy it for this uh, time being and then put your label on it and sell it uh, to keep the lights on until your stock comes of age. Um, the whiskey industry's got a lot of smoke and mirrors in it. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of BS um, and a lot of misconceptions and a lot of slick marketing to trick you as a consumer into thinking stuff's older than it is or made somewhere else or, you know, it's marketed to have this like romantic idea of Americana where some old rustic bearded dude's going to be distilling it on some land up in the Appalachians or something Wine like that. Wine does the same thing. Okay. Yeah. 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 And beer. I oh mean, yeah. terms people don't know what they mean, you know, like... Exactly, because if you look at the label, most people aren't understanding what they're actually reading. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a, a bunch of hot buzzwords that make right. it sound more Well, we were even looking at romantic. stuff, we were like, I don't know what that word means. I don't know if that's even relevant. But I mean, like like you said, there's not really a market for that right now. You guys are kind of well, just like doing it. Craft or artisan, those those don't have any kind of... There's no... I mean, you could just put that on well, there. Uh, <laughs> small batch. To, right? There's no legal definition on what small batch is. So you can put it yeah. on your label and it yeah. makes you think small that it's much like more you know, craft made and bourbon. all this sort of stuff. But it could be three barrels, it could be 3,000 barrels. There's no guideline to what small batch is. Well, and then another idea is that a lot of times small batch, even if it is small batch with whiskey production, doesn't relate to quality because a lot of times the um, big houses, let's say um, Buffalo Trace or Jim Beam, they're able to offer kind of a more consistent 
like measured product um, versus a, like a tiny craft distillery might have a lot more variation. And I've tasted a lot of local whiskeys that aren't aren't that good. Yeah, and a lot of you know smaller distilleries getting started out will age their whiskey in uh, smaller barrels, uh, micro casking, uh, because you're increasing the surface area. Uh, whiskey to wood, which ages the, it'll age a whiskey quicker. It won't mature a whiskey quicker. In fact, it'll still taste pretty rough. Uh, we were fortunate enough because of the Lamb family uh, and their capital backing that we didn't have to do gins and vodkas and unaged spirits to keep the lights on or buy sourced whiskey or do micro casking. We were able to basically just do full 53 gallon barrels of malt whiskey. And you know that's why we started in 2010, but didn't release a product till 2013. Um, you know, it was basically just like focus on what our craft is and start, uh, you know, setting back barrels to age. Um, you do a lot of off-site barrel storage now. All our production is done here at this location. Um, these 200 barrels are all of the whiskey that we have aging here at this location. Our rack house is actually down in Hoquiam, okay. uh, west of Aberdeen. Uh, it's originally, uh, it's where the Lamb family was based. Um, and down in Hoquiam, it has an even more temperate, even keel climate than Seattle. It's essentially 60 to 65 degrees every damn day. Uh, and our rack house used to be old lumber rack uh, warehouses that easily converted into rack houses in a Dunnage style. So they're long, not very tall rack houses, unlike Kentucky, which are multi-storied. Um, and they're several blocks from the water. Uh, and so you do get a lot of very briny sea salt air, uh, and it essentially emulates a Scottish rack house environment, all those rack houses that are positioned right on the coast with the waves crashing into them. Uh, so we're able to basically have a Scottish rack house environment down in Hoquiam, plus 50,000 square feet of rack house is a lot cheaper in Hoquiam where there's not much down there these days. Everybody's like, where's Exactly. I think we drove through there, mm -hmm. and have you been there before? Uh, it's, there's not much going on. No, it's, it's, it's an old lumber ghost town, really. I mean, there's a rack house and there's a, a burger spot. And, uh, there's the uh, Lamb family's business EII's offices there. But other than that, there's not a whole lot down there these days. Uh, we age our whiskey down there because it basically makes for the best uh, environment to Asian malt whiskey. Like I was saying, up here, because it's a much more moderate climate, Back to my analogy about you know bourbon barrels doing deep breaths, our barrels are essentially taking very shallow breaths, which gently ages the whiskey because it's much uh, because of its fragility. So it's kind of the opposite of that micro casking where the it's almost the maturity is happening more so than the aging. To use that analogy of if you're using a small cask, it imparts a lot of flavor very quickly to the whiskey, but doesn't mellow it and right. impart nuance. Right, which is where that, like I was talking about, the toasting and everything like that, you're getting the wood sugars to kind of help flavor the whiskey. You're kind of, it's sort of like a pressure cooker for whiskey. You're just kind of forcing it to happen as opposed to letting it do its thing. So, you know, when we came up with the idea of aging malt whiskey in a bourbon barrel, a new oak barrel, Matt brought that up to the Scottish and they thought he was crazy. They're like, you, you know, you're going to wreck the whiskey. It's going to get over oaked. You're not going to be able to do it. Uh, and actually, you know, We've proven successfully that we can. Um, and in fact, I've heard stories that several people have gone to distilleries in Scotland, like Oban, Talisker, and those guys actually have some Westland behind the counter. And they actually, they, they like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
here almost, I don't know, it seems like the American palate can approach this style of whiskey, perhaps because of that new oak, um, mm -hmm. is a connection to bourbon and styles that people are familiar with, but it leads in, the, in this other direction. Yeah, bourbon, style. bourbon and Canadian whiskeys are really, really sweet. Um, by contrast, uh, Scottish-style whiskeys are, you know, peated for the most part a lot of the time, and so Americans typically aren't as, you know, prone to liking a smoky whiskey than, you know, their palate's more acclimated to something sweeter like a corn-based whiskey. Um, you know, corn's naturally sweet, it's why we make corn syrup, the flavor of the shit out of everything with it. Um, you know, malt whiskey has a wider spectrum of potential flavor, if you want to think about it. It's really broad. You can get, and bourbon's much more narrower, and rye's even narrower than that. Um, you know, you can get a, a, a malt whiskey that can taste like a bourbon, or it tastes like a rye, but you're never going to get a rye or a bourbon that's going to taste like a malt whiskey. Um, just because you have a wider palette of potential. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, this is our cask room. Uh, all the barrels in here are aging. They're full. Um, the cool thing about them is because it's a climate-controlled environment, there is an angel share in the traditional sense in this room. Uh, we actually lose water instead of alcohol. Uh, and to answer your question, I'm sorry, I totally spaced on it. Typically, we lose about 2% annually down in Hopium to angel share. Um, there's another uh, distillery that does malt whiskey in Waco, Texas, Texas mm -hmm. it's called Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and they do a Texas malt whiskey. Uh, it's oh, really yeah. hot in Waco all year, and they lose upwards of 12 to 20 percent to angel share a year. That's a lot. Yeah, just from, of, that's just from how hot it is. Yeah, and one of the so guys. So, like, what about your your profit on that? I mean, I'm I'm sorry. Is that a, does that equate into your profit and loss when you're making this? Or yeah, I mean, uh, we had one of the guys tour here, and he said, you know, sometimes they lose 20 percent annually. Blows my mind I mean, because if you age doing... it five years, you don't have anything left. Right, because I mean, you guys are sitting out. Well, I mean, approximately how long are you aging your whiskeys for? Are they all different age? Uh, I would say down in Hoquiam, we have around 4,000 barrels. In this room, there's about 200. Um, we typically, most of the whiskeys that you're going to drink that are Westland are going to be two to three years. Are you holding back? Some barrels for about 15, extra. 15% or so, give or take, uh, 15 to 20% of what we have in storage down in Hoquiam are going to be in used barrels and they're marked for extended aging. Um, you know, so, like 10 years down the line, you might have like a. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably get around to it. I don't know if we'll ever put age statements on our whiskey uh, just because there's a lot of, again, BS and assumptions about what a number means on a barrel or right, a bottle. It, I mean, it could be aged, but it could be affordable whiskey. <laughs> Anytime you read a whiskey bottle and it says an age statement, you know, like something 15, that means the youngest whiskey in it, the youngest barrel that is in this is 15 years old. It could have a 27 year. Right. Um, like Remy is supposed to be 10, but most of it's aged far longer than that. Correct. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people make assumptions about it because putting age statements on whiskey actually is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, you know, in the 70s, everyone got off of whiskey and went to clear spirits. They were drinking tons of vodkas, tons of gins, and the whiskey industry kind of hit uh, a recession and no one was buying whiskey. And so stocks got older and no one was buying it, uh, but they had to keep producing because you just kind of 
put your head down and power through when the market kind of tanks out. Mm -hmm. Because it'll pick back up and then you have stocks to pull from. Right. Um, and so when the 80s came around, they realized they had, oh, a bunch of 15-year-old whiskey. And so to market it in a way that people could relate and make think it was a better product than it was. Higher quality because of its age. Yeah, they took right. a cue from the wine industry, you know, and vintages, uh, and started putting out, you know, a whiskey that's 15 years old and marketed it as, you know, this much higher product, even though before that it might have had some younger whiskey, it might have had some 15-year whiskey, and it was still fine. Uh, mm -hmm. But people assumed that older meant better, and that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I still get occasional hateful emails from ignorant people that are like, uh, number one, you put E in the name, so it can't be real whiskey. Uh, <laughs> number two, you guys don't put out, uh, I won't drink your whiskey until it's 15 years old. And it's like, okay, just being an a asshole, but kind of just painting yourself into a corner. If you're going to be that blockheaded about it and, yeah. you know, only drink stuff that's that old. There's plenty of other things out there for Yeah, if you're going to be that big of a, a butthead about it, I don't want you drinking the whiskey anymore. So these are all the different types of barley? Yeah, so we do predominantly three main grain bills here, um, but we do various iterations uh, based on those and plays on them. Like I said, every distillery in Scotland uses pale malt. Uh, it's great, it makes tons of awesome whiskey. Um, we do a 100% pale malt grain bill. Uh, typically it's used sort of as blending tool. We don't ever typically release a whiskey that's all malted pale malt. Mm -hmm. um, we, that you guys uh, currently have, the American Oak as well as our Sherrywood, uh, use our five malt grain bill. So we use five different types of barley. We use a cue from the brewing industry uh, and use a bunch of specialty malts. So it's 70% pale malt still because we get a high sugar yield. Um, we also, and that's grown all in Washington. Uh, we also use 10% Munich malt that goes into German lagers. Uh, that's also grown here in Washington. 12% uh, extra special malt that we get from Wisconsin from Brees. And then these two uh, are a brown malt and a pale chocolate malt. So brown ales, nut brown ales, porters, stouts. Mm. Um, those are 4% each. Uh, you kind of want to take a cue from, uh, think about it in coffee terms. The, you can smell the coffee on here. You can snack <laughs> off too if you want. It's really tasty. Like the green it's almost like espresso beans or dark chocolate. Like such a familiar smell to me. But uh, just like coffee, the longer you roast a coffee bean, the darker it gets, the more flavor you get. Uh, the less caffeine you get, so that's why those medium or mild roast coffees will just get jacked. And you drink dark roast and you don't have the same buzz. So are these just the same grain, just roasted different amounts? Oh, uh, they're different. There's also different species of barley. Um, this is actually our peated malt. Uh, once it's been milled, peated malt. I'll explain that here in a second. But uh, Ooh. similarly, like, like to finish my my point about the uh, the roasting, the longer yeah. you roast uh, barley, the less sugar yields you'll get. Right. Which is why we only use four percent for the darker ones. They impart great flavor, but we don't get the sugar yield that we need. Um, because anytime you have alcohol, what you're doing is you're taking sugar, you're introducing yeast. The yeast is the sugars, it produces alcohol as a byproduct. Um, barley isn't naturally sweet. It's actually pretty starchy. Um, and so what you have to do with barley is malt it. Um, and malting means you're going to take the grain, you're going to soak it in water for a couple days, and it's going to, enzymes within the barley grain are going to convert starches into sugars because you're essentially tricking the barley into thinking it's springtime, I'm going to grow into a plant. And it starts to germinate. Uh, it actually will start to sprout. Um, and it's going to use those sugars as energy to grow. We need the sugars for alcohol, and so we have to stop that germination process. And so what we do is we actually, commonly for 
especially all of these, um, we'll put it in a kiln just like coffee and dry it out. And that stops the germination process. Um, Is that like a rotating thing? Yep, just like a drum. A drum. Okay. Um, peated malt, uh, in Scotland back in the day, they, you know, they burned, and they still do, in fireplaces and furnaces, they burn peat uh, as a fuel source. They don't have as much lumber. Uh, and so what they do is they'll burn peat to dry the barley out. Uh, what also happens is just like when you stand next to a campfire, the next day you just cannot get the smell out of your jacket. Uh, same thing happens to the barley. As it dries, the smoke or the phenols get trapped in the barley grain, which is why Scottish whiskeys that have been peated are so smoky. And right. to take an idea from terroir, wherever you source your peat from, peat's decomposing plants, uh, grasses. Uh, wherever you get your peat from is going to have a different chemical composition. Uh, from various places, so like Isla whiskies, Ardbeg, Lagavulin, Lafroy, etc. Um, Isla is one of the oldest rock formations on Earth, and so everything that's been decomposing on Isla is prehistoric. Um, and within that soil, there's a heavy, heavy concentration of cresol, uh, which is what you we used to use to make antiseptic wipes and band-aids, which is why a lot of time when you smell very peaty whiskeys, it smells like a hospital or iodine or bandages. Yeah. It's the same uh, compound. Oh, that was Britannomyces, like from the barrel or something. Britannomyces produces a chemical that is probably related. Yeah, oh, okay. it's probably producing a lot of creasel. So when you're imparting flavor onto your whiskey specifically, like for instance, Scotch whiskey, you get that flavor from smoking the peat during that stage of the drying process. Is there anything that you guys do during the drying process that imparts flavor? Since you're not using the, well, you use the peated for some of it, you said. But yeah, our peated malt right now is coming from Inverness in the Scottish Highlands, which is a grassier region. Mm -hmm. um, and so our peated whiskey is a blend of that grain bill as well as Washington pale malt, about 50-50. And so it's it's not gonna be like an high level. Yeah. Um, so is that sweet then? Like all the sugar's been brought out of it and like it's dried and mm -hmm. that would be fermentable? Like if I tasted that, would that be sweet? Um, it wouldn't, yeah, I mean it would be a little sweet and smoky. Yeah. Too. Smells good. Yeah, you can try any of these, especially the lighter roast, and they're gonna be much sweeter. Yeah, this one's really sweet. Do you mind um, saying the names of all the things again? Yeah, so our five malt grain bill is 70% 70 70 Washington Select Pale. 10% Washington Munich, 12% extra special malt from Greece, and 4% brown malt and 4% pale chocolate malt. Uh, these last two, the brown and the pale chocolate, we get from Thomas Fawcett and Sons in the UK. Um, another cool thing that we're doing here, like I said, uh, really using local terroir, uh, and Skagit Valley being one of the most fertile soils on Earth it's in the 98th percentile. Uh, they grow tons of tulips up there. Uh, tulips ravage the soil. They suck out tons of nutrients when they're grown. And a lot of the farmers up there will basically go to a Eurocentric style of agriculture where following the tulip crop, they'll grow barley and then beans to reintroduce carbon and nitrogen back into the soil. Uh, what happens when uh, they grow the barley? Uh, in the United States, we use 10 varieties of barley for food and beverage production. Uh, and the really messed up thing is they're not designed to be nutritious or good for you and they're not designed to taste good <laughs> so what are they for they're designed to have a high sugar yield and be disease resistant uh, we used to have with wheat with rye with barley we used to have regional varieties 
that would grow in specific climates and ecosystems and tasted different depending on where you went. I think corn might be the same way. Yeah. Many different. Big agars kind of stepped in and kind of wiped that all out and sued the crap out of anyone trying to. You know, yeah, uh, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Big agar. Um, but uh, you know, there's ten varieties of barley that we use in the U.S. out of. 32,000 that exist. Oh, wow. What are, what are these two in the back? Uh, so these are actually what uh, some of the single origin stuff that we're doing with Skagit Valley. Oh, cool. Uh, the Skagit Valley, uh, like I said, is some of the most fertile soil on earth. And the farmers used to grow barley, uh, and it was a, of those 10 varietals. And so they would actually just plow it back into the soil because they wouldn't make anything in market on the barley. Or they would use it just for cattle feed, um, which was tragic because they take a hit financially every year. Uh, Skagit Valley Malting Company is a relatively new company up there, about as old as we are. And they're working in conjunction with the Washington State Bread Lab, uh, who are based up there out of Mount Vernon. I think I heard about this. They're, go they're trying to use ancient grains and mm. redo because there's so much, so many chemicals and things that happen with bread making. And yep. They wanted to start making their own flour because there's so much chemical in certain areas of the, the ground. Sure. So they're um, actually crossbreeding all these other 32,000 strains to work together to grow yeah. in certain climates and different soil varieties. Oh, wow. My friend Molly has an advanced knowledge. She's got her own wine so uh, business called OK Wine. It specializes in organic things. And, oh, cool. And she's gotten really into bread making, and she's like, they're doing this cool project, and she's like, Martha Stewarting it, like harvesting the green and like milling it herself and like yeah, all this crazy stuff. It sounds just kind of boring to say there's like, a, a food and beverage revolution happening, and it's in your backyard essentially. But it is, and it's awesome. it's yeah. really going to change the name of our food and beverage industry in the United States because, Good. especially these days, with rice and corns and wheats uh, and even barley, you know, you have a lot of people that are sensitive to grain or gluten, yeah. uh, and it really just has to do commonly with an intolerance for these inbreeding grains of the 10 varieties that we use. That makes a lot of sense. I'm not gonna knock, if you guys have bulldogs, I'm not gonna knock them, they're local dogs, but it's sort of like that, where the breed has been inbred so much that it has sinus problems, and it's genetically uh, in a position where it's gonna have more disease and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and that's essentially kind of an analogy of what we're doing with our grains. And that's why we have such an intolerance for a lot of these kind of... So would you call yourselves a sustainable whiskey distillery? Because uh, you're using all local. Now, is that a good term too? Or? Not, yeah. I don't know. People I don't throw know. that word around a lot, but it sounds like you guys are making a huge effort here. So like, I mean, we do a lot here, of projects awesome. to minimize our footprint. We, yeah. uh, a lot of the barley that we use gets kicked out to that silo on the, or the grain truck on the side. We have a dairy farm that comes and picks that up every week for cattle feed. Uh, we reuse old barrels to breweries so they can use them for barrel aging. Um, working with Skagit Valley, in terms of that, and uh, you know, we we just did uh, a trip down to south of Tacoma, and we did uh, gary oak tree planting near the base. So we That's planted really oh, cool. great, 250 gary oak trees down there. Cool. The sapling, so, I mean, we are working in ways that are sustainable for a, a better business model and for the area in general. That's I wouldn't awesome. go so far as to say we're completely sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's legal ramifications for that sort of stuff. Right. We're, we're trying to. But that's really cool, though, that you guys go the extra mile. Can I ask what your um, your emblem is here? Yeah, it's our tree coil. coil. It's a coil from the distillery. Yep. Coil and then the Gary Oak tree. Oh, uh, just a tree. Just We're the evergreen state, and it's a nod also to the lumber families' history. Yeah. Oh, 
that's really cool. I what about the, the color as far as red? Is that a family color? or? Mm -hmm. It was the uh, old lamb family emblem. It was a red triangle, a red uh, diamond. But um, yeah, to get back to the Skagit Valley stuff, they're crossbreeding heirloom varieties of barley to be adept at the soil of the Skagit Valley. So what the farmers are doing is growing these heirloom varieties of wheat and rye and barley, and they're making more yield and market growing those than the tulips. Wow. So it's a win-win-win. They make more money. Uh, we get to use these heirloom varieties of barley, and you all get to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Have you used any of it yet, or they're still working on it? They're still aging. Um, so these are well, two different Skagit? Yeah. So uh, Pike Brewing and Chuckanut Brewing uh, are using their uh, grains for beers, and um, I'm sorry, name the bakery down the street, Macarena, mm. is using the wheat to bake bread. Yes. Um, so this is Skagit Valley um, malt that has been peated with peat locally. So we have a, a peat bog that we go down to near Shelton. The peninsula is full of wetlands. But in the United States, wetlands are federally, federally protected. You can't go in willy-nilly and start digging peat out. Of the ground. You know, <laughs> off. Uh, yeah, so you know, it's like a lot of marsh. Um, and so they're essentially peat bogs. So we uh, go to a privately owned peat bog and take a backhoe and dig out local peat. And take it up to Sketch Valley and they pelletize it and put it in their kilns and peat local barley with local. What does that look like when you get it off the ground? I've never seen a peat. I'll show you before. in a little bit when we do the tasting. We got some uh, raw different? peat and some dried peat. Oh, cool. Wow. Um, but, yeah. like I was saying, you know, I love this Highland region versus wherever you're sourcing your peat. Yes. This is Washington. So you can smell it compared to this. Yeah. And it's got the Scottish like, right? This is like barbecue, and that's like kind of. But that's the, this is the Scottish yeah, it's stuff much more that, you, yeah. that you buy, yeah. right? Yep. Like, that's much more barbecuey. Yeah. And this is and like wild. And it has to do with the you know the vegetation and the chemical composition. <laughs> like of peat. You know, down in our peat bog, a lot of it's this, um, this a lot so of heather clean. and a lot of Labrador tea, which is this local shrub. Mm. It smells like what is it? Labrador tea. It's sort of, if you crush it and smell it, it smells like lavender, rosemary, and orange peel together. Wow. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Maybe it's, it's kind of comparable to, in barbecuing, smoking mesquite versus applewood. Apple yeah. Different woods will impart different. Yeah. Um, in fact, actually, going back to the whole uh, single malt thing in the United States, we're part of establishing the Single Malt Whiskey Commission to lobby the government to recognize the field of American single malt, and so we're in cahoots with about 50 other distilleries cool. uh, that do malt whiskeys. One of them, uh, out of Tucson, instead of using terroir, they have locally, they don't have peat bogs in the desert. Uh, they have mesquite, so they're mesquite smoking oh, peat. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, That's we have amazing. a bottle up in our library. It smells, it's weird. It smells it like, weird? Smells yeah, like glazed potato chips almost. <laughs> wow. Glazed potato chips. Is that good? What's, yeah, what's uh, this one? Like this is another Skagit. Yeah, so this is purple obsidian. It's a purple malt, is it uh, and its uh, origins come from Egypt. They used to grow, in, you know, in Egypt thousands of years ago. Wow, cool and name too. Yeah, I think the name's really cool. So we've done purple obsidian, the Skagit peated. Uh, we just finished doing distillations this week of uh, Pilot malt, uh, Talisman malt, Copeland, Alba. Uh, so we've done a handful of different malts that they've produced up in Skagit Valley. Cool. But uh, it's. Gonna, we have no idea how they're gonna taste. You know, like we don't know what our Washington peated whiskey is gonna taste like. It could totally suck. We don't know. But it's one of those things that, like, you know, you have to, uh, you know, 
think outside the box and try things differently. Um, and that's what I think we excel at, is we really kind of think outside the box and are innovating. In a, a lot of the whiskey world's very caught in their ways and old world style of doing things, because that's the way they've always done them. They don't rethink them or question them. It's like wine. Yeah. It's a lot like wine. And so we're taking a lot of uh, philosophical ideas from the wine industry and implementing them in the whiskey world. <laughs> and we're making a lot of, you know, like I said, we're blazing our own trail. Yeah, I love pretty, it. Pretty cool. Um, and that's because we don't have a government body dictating what we no can regulations. do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we can check out the production facility now that I've kind of rambled on for this. <laughs> uh, what we have here is our Highland Peated Malt. Oh, cool. And that's Gary Oak right there. Oh, yeah. So what happens is typically our specialty malts come uh, on pallets like this. And our silos hold a lot of the pale malt since that's uh, a large component of our production. Uh, and we're gonna pump that into our mill room, which is on the other side of these pallets. And we use a four-part roller mill to coarsely break it apart. In Scotland, they use typically what's called a hammer mill, so it's pulverized into a flour. We use a coarser grind uh, to kind of act as a natural filter in our mash tun so we don't get particles into our fermenters. Um, oh, that makes sense. Kind of like a carbon filter, the particles trap. Small. Any residual kind of particles or compounds from making their way into the fermenters. Because unlike bourbon, where they just throw the entire mash, corn, uh, grit, and all into the fermenters to... They're ferment. not separating wort from uh, grist? Nope. They throw it all in. We actually separate it. Uh, and that's why we use such a coarse grind. Uh, Gar's got to show off. Um, <laughs> So once it's been milled, it's gonna get augered up through this PVC pipe into our uh, grain receiver. And then once it's time to do a mash, we'll turn a wheel, open it up, and it'll meet uh, hot water from our tank here. And then start to fill up our mash tun. Uh, and we can come and check that out. So is mashing a little bit like um, maybe making, making coffee where you're using hot water to extract the, yep. the good stuff? Yeah. Uh, this room is essentially, for better lack of a term, it's a brewery. Um, and we're just not adding hops, I guess, is the main difference. We're making, I mean, because we use a brewer's yeast, we're just basically making massive amounts of high-gravity, unhopped Belgian Saison. Yeah. Do you ever keep any of that? Uh, we can actually sample some on this. Off the fermenters. Uh, because legally, we are a distillery and not a brewery, we can't sell it. Uh, but we have donated uh, and loaned out barrels to Mollusk in the South Oak Union. Oh, cool. And they've done our five malt grain mill and did a Saison yeast and aged it in Old Westland barrels and did a beer version of our whiskey. Have, do any distilleries ever release their mash or, or the, what is it, the wash? I think it would be at the end as a beer. I think legally you would have to also have a brewer's license. Got it. Uh, because right now we have like on the barrels it says DSP, Distilled Spirit Producer. Mm -hmm. I think you would have to have a different license from the state. I see. So this is our mash tun. Um, typically what happens is Ellie, our mash woman, will turn this blue wheel. It'll open up the flow of milled grain uh, through this pipe where it, this tube is called the Steel Smasher. Uh, really what it does is Steel Smasher. It was invented by a guy whose last name was Steel. Uh, okay. Uh, so it meets hot water from our hot liquor tank and kind of ensures that we don't have any clumping. Uh, we're going to fill up the mash tun to 5,000 liters and we do two mashes a day to fill up a 10,000 liter fermentation tank. Um, Each one of these is 10,000 liters? Yep. 
and each one was filled on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We're in production four days a week. Uh, one fermenter is usually left empty to clean uh, most of the time. Uh, and really, like yeah, like I said, what, what's happening here is just like a brewery. We're taking all of that sugar that's uh, occurred during the malting process, and we're going to extract it into the basically making like a really sweet barley tea. Uh, and after we get the extraction levels that we're satisfied with in the volume uh, or gravity, uh, we're going to start to water or pump out through the bottom of the tank uh, and start to fill one of the fermentation tanks. Uh, and after we water or pull out all of the, the wort, uh, you end up with a bunch of spent grain on the bottom. Uh, it has a bunch of trapped residual sugars still in it. Uh, and so we have a little sprinkler system on the roof of the tank in there and it sprays hot water on the spent grain. We call it sparging. Uh, basically what we're doing is squeezing out any residual sugars and we pump those out into this third runnings tank right here, this teeny tank. And we'll use that and add that to the next mash to kickstart uh, the next mash because it's all about sugar extraction. The more sugar you get, the more alcohol you get. Is that in any way like a sour mash? Sour mash actually is what happens when you leave a residual amount of yeast in the fermenters and so when you add the next batch you pitch yeast using it's sort of like a sourdough starter um, and we don't do sour mashes because we actually clean and sanitize the tank and start fresh with a new batch of yeast uh, and we use an enzyme to help neutralize the pH levels in the tank so we don't have to worry about sour mash. What's the enzyme called? Uh, I'm not sure to be honest. Uh, we have it in the... We're like really like... No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, she was like Emily's earlier when you're talking about malting. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah, we can take a look. I'm sure I can find out. It's in the freezer right here. Um, but it basically neutralizes the pH levels in the tank, makes it a more hospitable environment for the brewer's yeast to work. Um, because brewer's yeasts usually work much slower than distiller's yeasts, uh, the M strain that every distillery in Scotland uses will ferment a whole tank in two days, uh, up to about 12% ABV. Brewer's yeast is a lot slower. It kind of dies off if uh, the climate proves inhospitable. Uh, so the enzyme kind of basically makes it a, a more hospitable environment for it to do its job. And our fermentation takes four to five days as opposed to two. So we have to double our time, but we end up with a more flavorful product. Um, and we still end up about eight to 10% ABV. Okay. Um, and then after we sparge, all the residual um, grain is kicked out through this little trap door uh, and then it's pumped out through this pipe to the side of the building into the grain silo or grain truck where the dairy farm from Unum, Unum Claw comes and picks it up every Sunday for cattle feed. So if you guys drink dairy gold milk, those cows are eating uh, the early stages of Westland. <laughs> <laughs> They've got good taste. Yes, they do. Gluten and dairy. Are they getting My a little bit thing. buzzed as well? <laughs> I don't you know, technically, I don't think so, but there is the chance that since it's sitting in the truck with open yeast spores in the air, that possibly there could be a minimal amount of fermentation occurring in the oh, truck. Oh, okay, right, okay. Um, so there's it's not a, happening right, right here. Yeah, the the ferment. The only time right. we're creating alcohol as a distillery are in these tanks. We don't actually create any alcohol in the stills. All we're doing is basically condensing and, and, and concentrating so it. Fermentation here is is basically just liquid. Yep. But in you were saying in like bourbon production, they'll be doing the fermentation on on the grain. Like yep. so it's kind of like in wine production, 
where you're you're doing white wine production, where you're you're pressing off of the skins of the grapes and just fermenting juice, versus red wine production, you're fermenting on the skins. Yep, precisely. Okay. Yeah, very similar idea. That's a good analogy. I've never heard it put that way, but yes. Um, you can use that. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to use it. Uh, but yeah, so I guess we're essentially like a white wine production. <laughs> we're doing it off the grain. <laughs> well, and also you have another parallel to white wine where a lot of times oak treatment for white wine has to be much more delicate because um, white wine grapes um, are much easy, more easily affected. Um, so red wine grapes are much more robust. So it's like red wine grapes are kind of like corn mm -hmm. where they can take a beating yeah. with uh, charred new oak versus white wine grapes, you don't want to have as much oak impact, so it, it's better to have more of a toasted thing. And yeah, like white, white wine, I guess, in whiskey terms, using that analogy, white wine would be more like a malt, and yes. then a red would be more like a corn base. Corn. Because uh, I think if you want to break it down into oil composition, I think like corn whiskey is more like 4% uh, oil, whereas malts are like two. Oh. They're literally half the amount of oil. Maybe next time we taste like Westland against a, a corn-based American whiskey, we'll notice te a textural difference. You, you should. Uh, if you have a burp, when we do, um, like if you get a waxy taste, that's usually indicative of a bit more of an oil. That's cool, because like, like, yeah, I like that comparison idea. We'll do that sometimes. But uh, yeah, if you want to step down here, we can take a look at the fermenters. And uh, we can try some of the, the wash. Um, on a younger tank, this is actually settled yeast, but you can start to see it coming down and Please. settling. Yeah. Uh, sometimes if it's a fresher tank, you'll see it just kind of shooting everywhere. But, uh, look at this. So how long do they hang out in the fermentation tank for? About four to five days. Looks really cloudy. And then you've got it, you take this part off first. Oh, and like let the rest of it like sit here. in there for like a little bit like longer. Tastes like a saison. Where you add water to it. We won't add water to it. Warm saison. Oh, totally does. It's really fruity. There you go. Um, this is probably near the end stages of fermentation. Um, what we'll do is like we're in production four days a week. One's left empty to sanitize. Um, we're gonna pump half the tank into the still and distill it, and then take the second half and distill it later that day. Yeah, it's, you guys are drinking, you know, uh, basically unhopped high gravity Belgian saison. Because you said you do use the saison uh, barley or yeast. 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 Yeah, this is not going to be our five malt green mill. This is probably the pilot malt from Skagit Valley. It has that tang though, that little bitter tang. Yeah, I like so, it. I mean, this is more of a beer question. Banana bread. Oh my gosh. But um, <laughs> carbonation in beer. Mm -hmm. Like, from a keg, is that sort of forced carbonation? Partly. Uh, yeast also produces carbon dioxide as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. If you want to think about it in crass terms, it's crafting alcohol and farting CO2. <laughs> um, not the most appetizing analogy, I know, but uh, what we do is we actually vent the CO2 out through the roof because we have no need for carbonation. Um, whereas with a beer, you want the carbonation. It's what makes beer beer for the most part, unless you're... Uh, specific types of beer that are designed to be flat. Yeah. So are you releasing the CO2 when you're fermenting these washes to keep it flat? 
say. Yeah, because we don't want any carbonation entering the stills, really. What okay. would happen if it oh, entered yeah. the stills? It'd just make for a bit of a mess, and it would build up pressure because right. it's a sealed environment. Right. We'd, we'd have to monitor the PSI of the There's actually a, uh, a gauge up by the stills mm -hmm. you can see. Uh, so it'll like actually pressure, I mean, with enough pressure, hypothetically, it would cause a catastrophic explosion. Yeah. Seems like it not ideal. <laughs> so in, in like a traditional beer brewing, they'll they'll not vent this the CO two as much right. or at all. At all, yeah. Um, but just like a lot of bourbon distilleries, like if you go to Maker's Mark, they actually do fermentation open uh, open huh. tanks. You can actually like stick your hand in and try some. Wow. Uh, and their Maker's actually uses cedar. Uh, Cedar line tanks. They're actually wooden. That is fascinating. So instead of doing like cedar chips or throwing that in there, that would also like impart probably a lot of harsh tannin onto your product that you yep. don't want. So they just do that. Interesting. And we we use steel because it's easier to clean. Um, and because we're using a saison yeast. Right. You already saisons have are it's really flavorful. Yeah, saisons are farmhouse yeast traditionally. So they're just open tanks and farm uh, barns with vatted slots where the wild yeast would populate and ferment. Mountain Brewing, their saison is so good. We went there like a couple months yeah, ago. Yeah, uh, one of the owners at Holy Mountain used to work here. Oh, really? Oh, really? And he left to start Holy Mountain. <laughs> so they use a lot of our barrels. Wow. We're, uh, we're great. We have a great working relationship with them. Um, and there you go. And so that's also, you know, another reason why we love the Holy Mountain guys is, you know, they're really, in terms of the beer world, hops, in my opinion, has been done to death, especially in the Pacific Northwest. And what they're doing is they're experimenting with yeast. You know, you're taking one of the other components and really kind of doing some really interesting things with it. Yeah, the beers were fantastic. They were all very different. Like we did a huge flight of all of them and they were really, really good. And they wouldn't do growler fills with them because they only make a limited amount of each one that they do. Yeah. They kind of, they keep changing yeah. and doing new things, which I thought was really neat. Yeah, what they're doing with the yeast right now in terms of the beer world is just groundbreaking. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I cool. love those guys. Um, so, in terms of production, this ferments, we basically have hydride Belgian Saison without hops, and then we pump it into the still room, and we're going to concentrate all that alcohol. Uh, so all of the alcohol production is happening in these tanks. Uh, we don't produce any alcohol in the next room. It's just getting rid of all the other stuff and basically taking a beer and taking the alcohol in it and concentrating it. Correct me if I'm wrong. So when you have just basically the sugary liquid that's not fermented yet. That's called wort. W-O-R-T. And yeah. then this, now that it's beer is wash. Correct. Okay. Yep. Got it. So it's barley, then it's malt, then it's grist, then it's wort, then it's wash, then it's low wines, then it's high wines, then it's whiskey. When is it mashed? Is it ever mashed? Or is that just the mash ton? Is that like... Mash is the process of creating wort. Mash is the process and wash, and wort is the product that goes in and, um, uh, wash is the product that comes out. Yeah, wash is the fermented, or okay. beer, for back, like a lack of a better term. Got it. Mash. Okay, got it. Or mash is the wash. Yep. Okay. And uh, if you guys still have the gush, you can dump them here, otherwise I'll pick them up here. Wait, so you guys are making wine here too? You're making wine? Like low wine and high wine? That's, that's the... the the term we use, yeah, the, the old Scottish term, is low wines and high wines. So, uh, 
These are our stills. They're from Vendome out of Louisville, Kentucky. They are made of copper, and at the time, they were the largest stills Vendome had produced, copper pot so stills. Cool. Um, so you can take a look in here. You can see the, the coiled pipe. That's the tree coiled. <laughs> because the coiled pipe actually will have steam running through them, and that's going to be our heating element to heat up our wash. Um, so this is our wash still and our spirit still, obviously. Um, so we double distilled our whiskey. Uh, if it was Ireland, typically it would be distilled one more time. Uh, because every time you distill, you're cutting away other um, components and basically narrowing and concentrating it. Which is why traditionally Irish whiskeys tend to be a lot smoother because they've been triple distilled. So there's even more stripping of other flavors and harshness. Um, bourbons are typically distilled on a column still, a continuous still, so they're right, 30 yeah. feet tall, uh, if not more, several stories tall, and there's plates, um, uh, deflagnators, uh, so there has to be a certain, uh, distillation works sort of like how you boil water on your stove with the lid on, uh, you're going to see water become a gas as a vapor and then recondense on your pot lid as a liquid and trickle back down. Uh, with distillation, we call it reflux because alcohol evaporates at a temperature less than the boiling point of water. At about 174, 175 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, alcohol vapors will begin to uh, lift out of the wash and then they'll condense back on the sides of the stills. And because we use copper uh, for a reason, number one, it's malleable so we can make it in these weird, crazy shapes. Number two, it actually filters out sulfur uh, and bonds to the sides of the still on the inside, forming copper sulfate and sulfite, which is why you have this kind of like bluish green and black. That's copper sulfate. So you keep it at that temperature to get the alcohol vapors going, but not boil the water. Which is 212 Fahrenheit? Yep. For boiling point water, right. Um, and then how, how long are you doing that for? Um, so a wash distillation, uh, we'll fill this up and it'll basically fill up half of one of those We'll take half of one of those fermentation tanks to fill up this one. Okay. Um, and then we'll distill it for three, four hours, about four hours for a wash distillation. And uh, as reflux occurs, it's going to strip out the sulfur molecules, bond to the sides of the still. And then finally, the gas will finally work its way up through the top of the still and then through our line arm and into our condenser pipes. And inside our condenser pipes are 125 smaller copper pipes with cold water running through them. And it condenses that vapor back into the liquid where we collect it uh, in our spirit safe over here. Yes. Yep. Uh, and so we can direct the flow of alcohol depending on where we're at in the distillation to a variety of tanks. Because we actually do what are called cuts. Heads, hearts, and tails. Uh, the hearts is what we use for final spirit. The heads are very volatile. They contain a lot of like methyl alcohol that you don't want to drink. And the tails are real musty and have a lot of, uh, by that point, the end of the distillation, so you're starting to get water in with it. So you would run that off and get rid of like the first part of it that comes out and then get the middle and then also get rid of the last part? Yeah, when we do our first distillation or wash run, uh, we typically don't do all of those cuts. We'll do a tails cut at the very, very end when we start to get a lot more water and the, the proof drops off to about 4%. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next day, and those will be collected in our low wines receiver. And then we'll take the low wines the next day, which are about 30% alcohol, uh, or about 60 proof, and we'll still them one more time, a second time in our spirit still. And this will be one run as opposed to uh, doing two distillations at four hours each. Uh, the spirit distillation the next day will be one long run, about eight to nine hours. So I kind of caught that, but 
Not totally. Okay. Can you just explain it one more time on, on just the low wines? What are you doing there? So after we get all the alcohol from the first run, we'll end up with about, uh, the low wines will be about 60 proof or 30% alcohol. Uh, we will take that and pump it into our spirit still the next day and distill it a second time, concentrating it even more. So everything that's coming off of here, the hearts, all the hearts will end up here. Yep. In the low wines. Yep. Then that's the first distillation and then... Yep. This never sees raw, um, or I guess this never sees wash. This never sees wash. This is this yeah, wash. Well, wash is going in here. Wash is going in here, and then low wines goes. In low there. wines there, okay. and then high wines is the what comes off of that one. And that's that's the good stuff. That that's the hearts of our second distillate that you're then going to move into aging. Yep. Would the high wines be essentially like new make or yes. okay? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You guys are the best tour group I've had. You're actually like, you're doing half this tour for me. So you're making your money off of your low wines? High wines, yeah. High, high wines, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and that's really the second distillation when we're going to do heads, hearts, and tails. The heads, uh, another really uh, interesting thing we do here is we make all our cuts by nose. Really? Uh, we don't act, like if you go to Scotland and tour distillery, you ask them, when do you do the, the the cut points and they're like oh, we just kind of know or they go by time or by proof is that like a technical way to measure it or anything yeah they actually will yeah. uh they have hydrometers both sides and so they can measure the the concentration and the proof and depending on where they're at they kind of know like around this point to make the cut hydrometers yep. is the tool yeah so when you say when you're making the cut what, are, what is the actual process that occurs when you're making a cut so the heads um, smells really volatile because it has a lot of methyl alcohol. Have you ever heard stories of people drinking like bathtub gin during prohibition and losing their eyesight? That's yes, what we were talking about earlier. <laughs> it, because they didn't make those cuts and it had a large uh, concentration of methyl alcohol. The cure for methyl alcohol poisoning is ethyl alcohol. So if you drank uncut alcohol with, or cut uh, alcohol with cuts in it, you'd regain your sight. There's an, uh, an urban legend like a is that true, or is that a legend? Uh, yeah, if you keep drinking, hypothetically, you will lose, regain your eyesight. There's a like a an adage that. Uh, you mean like in the short term or like long term? Like one of the stories uh, Brian, when you're really, really Brian tells on his back. tours is uh, there was a German professor that was gifted some homemade uh, vodka by some students, and he ended up drinking the bottle, and the next day he woke up and he was blind and went to the emergency room and the doctor knew what had happened and went to his desk and pulled out a bottle of whiskey, put it in the IV, and he woke up a couple days later and had his eyesight back. <laughs> wow. You know, I actually think I heard that in Indonesia, the local spirit of Iraq, they were like, don't drink it, you go blind, you do, drink some more. You do, drink some more. And like, bottle, you know, alcohols in like the base, you know, that are being distilled. Is that present before it's distilled, or is that only when it's distilled that you get those like volatile? That's something I, I'm not sure to yeah, be honest. I would have to ask our, our Stillman, Tyler. Yeah, like, wow. Like when we're drinking, you know, beer or wine, why are we not going blind? You're not drinking enough of it. Oh, it's concentrated in a spirit. I mean, even if you had like a bottle of heads, you would have to drink a freaking load of it to lose your eyesight. Uh, a lot. So it's like, okay. Which is why it's not very common. You would have to like just be drinking raw methyl alcohol. Yeah, that's why your vision gets blurred when you're drunk. Is there any? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. 
purpose that you could use for the discarded heads? Like, could that be, like, where does it go? What do like you do Like industrial with it? cleaners. We use it around here. Right Keeps now? our windows clean. Okay. Cleans uh, up after Garf after he has mishaps. <laughs> which unfortunately is more often than I care to admit. Uh, you, you mentioned this being called a spirit safe. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, this is actually the first spirit safe that Vendome had produced. They were kind of uh, confounded when we brought that up to them. In Scotland back in the day, all distilleries had spirit safes. And the idea was they were padlocked and no one at the distillery had a key. The only person that had a key to open the spirit safe was the tax assessor. And so it kept the employees honest and kept them from pulling off raw new make off the still without being taxed accordingly. So the tax assessor could come, open up the spirit safe, see the gauge at how much alcohol had come off the still and tax them accordingly. Uh, like as you just saw, this is not locked. It's very easy to get into it. But it's essentially operating as your control center for the stills and directing the flow. Um, and so we kind of did it as an homage to that, that time. I think Copperworks has one too. Yeah. With uh, a padlock on it actually, like as a, you know, similar thing in homage. Yeah, we were really good uh, friends with Jeff and uh, all, Jason and all those guys. Um, they always bring over stuff for us to try. Their single malt that they just produced is really good. Um, yeah, so we do all our, our cuts by nose. Tyler, our stillman, will actually come up here every couple of minutes and pull off a little and kind of walk around and smell. Um, and depending on what he's smelling, will determine where he makes the cuts. Um, and it's a bit more of an abstract, artistic way of doing it, I guess. Because, like I said, the heads is very uh, solvent smelling. It smells like glue, acetone, paint thinner. Um, but as we get into the hearts, uh, it smells very much like artificial fruit. It smells like candy almost, like runs or Starburst or something like that. Mm. Um, in fact, in the room here, uh, those artificial fruit smells give way to natural fruit smells because of the esters uh, from the yeast. Uh, and it starts to smell, you get pastry notes too, so it's, you know, at some points it'll smell like cherry pie or apple pie in here. Um, and those pastry notes will then give way to fresh cut hay, fresh cut grass, um, and that's really the telltale sign that we're typically at the end of the hearts because then it'll start to get musty and those hay smells will start to smell like wet hay or wet dog or old gym sneakers. Um, and if we're doing like uh, our American oak or our sherry wood, that's when we'll make that cut and we start getting musty notes. Um, if we're doing a peated run, uh, a lot of the, the smoky notes are in the musty notes. Uh, so we won't make the cut on a peated run until way into normally what we, we would call the tails. And we'll cut much later in uh, to get those smoky notes on the whiskey. So you, you have this for your first distillation and for your second and different. Yeah, and so the head's knob will direct it to the head's uh, tank, uh, tails, there's actually a tank back here. And then our hearts uh, for this side is going to be our low wines receiver. And then uh, on that side will be our final spirit receiver. So for the, between the first and second distillation, are the notes that you're getting for the hearts, and, or sorry, the heads and the tails very similar? Or are they different? Or like is one, you know, is it like stronger in the first and not as noticeable in the second? Yet? It's so much like, stronger in the second. Stronger in the second. Because it's even more concentrated. Okay. Mm. But it's the same typical, like, It'll follow a blueprint, but it, it, there's definitely some noticeable differences. Mm -hmm. 
partly because it's much more concentrated the second go around because you know like hearts off the second crystal it will be 130 proof sometimes if not higher the first, and is, is it like double the first distillation then mm -hmm. okay so on on this type of still you're not able to achieve the same alcohol strength as a um, continuous still no you still could you could uh, i mean no I, I take that back we wouldn't be able to make like ever clear like 190 proof wouldn't really no, be possible we wouldn't be able to, no that's just not possible we could you get up to like 151 up there kind of like a, like an overproof rum yep um, in fact the heads and the tails from our runs are called uh, we take the heads and the tails and put them in one tank together and add water and bring them uh, which when you add water uh, causes fatty acids to separate sort of like oil and water is essentially what's happening uh, and so it, we call it phase separation um, and so we will actually then after adding water it's called faints uh, and we'll redistill our faints uh, it'll make uh, the hearts from the faints will make the final spirit uh, because these are hybrid pot stills the little like glass windows actually behind each one of those are plates or deflagnators that we can activate um, and so we can activate those for added reflux and more filtration uh, for a lighter spirit so when we do our faints run we can actually still pull perfectly good alcohol from our faints uh, and separate out the more volatile chemicals from them and so our hearts from our faints run will actually make its way into the final spirits the heads and the tails of the faints with the heads and the tails of the heads and the tails uh, we will use, like I said, for window cleaner, uh, clean the floors after Garf becomes Garf. Um, <laughs> or in the case of like, uh, one day I came to work on a Saturday morning and some knuckleheaded tagged uh, right by our front door on the red and it took the graffiti off. Really? Especially tagged a paint thinner factory. Right. <laughs> so then you've got high wines. Will that be adjusted with water before going into a barrel? Yeah, we will add water to bring them down to barreling proof. Uh, in new oak barrels, it'll be 110. In second fill barrels, it'll be 125. And if, if you put 125 in a new barrel, it'll just maybe pull too much flavor? Yeah, it'll be a little harsh. Okay. Um, and because we don't have a spirit safe, um, our final spirit receiver is actually on a scale. So it's got some spirit in it right now. Put your hand on it, and, uh, and that's how we will measure, and we we are taxed accordingly. Oh, like there's a scale, like this is a scale down there. Yep, this, it's is, like, on a, this it, is on a scale, and so wow. it also tells us when it, we're getting close to full. And then we have a tanker truck that shows up about once a week, and like we'll so pump it out. Uh, there's barely anything that's so yeah. sensitive. Out to the back of the building where we connect hoses and fill up the tanks in the truck, and then he trucks it down to Hopium, and our two guys down in Hopium fill up the barrels and set them aside for aging. Is this ounces that's measuring? No. Pounds. 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 Okay. That's a pound? The pound of pressure. I don't think we weigh them. Um, we just know how many bottles it produces. And typically in uh, any, like, uh, say for instance, our hand fill, uh, those are sold out as 375 milliliters, so we'll get around 400 bottles, uh, or, you know, with... A barrel? Uh-huh. Wow. 
at 375. So our normal whiskeys are sold 750, twice yeah. that. We'll probably get around 200 bottles per barrel. So when you're not giving awesome tours, are you on the production side here? No, not really. I usually have operations from the house. These are actually uh, some of the samples we got off the stills the other day, so we can uh, actually nose them. Um, if you add water to the heads, it'll cloud up. We call it demisting, so you can give it a smell and it'll definitely smell very solventy. And compare that to the Ooh, start of the oh. hearts. Ooh, fruity. And then we're getting into the tails. More musty. What does that smell like? And then that's definitely like the, the end candy, of the tail. Like the candy fruit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So totally. see, see how it becomes really one-dimensional? Yeah. You're not getting a bunch of flavor compounds. And what's the, this one? That's going to be probably the start of the tails. Yeah. Start of the tails, okay. And, and this, this is... That'll definitely be tails. Yeah. See how it's kind of become one-dimensional? It kind of smells just like yeah. stoop, uh, steep tea. Wet hay, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's so interesting. I like the hearts the best. Yeah, it's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the idea. Well, depending on the grains that we're using, too, you get different notes, and oh, it's, cool. it's always changing, uh, which is really fun. But yeah, so... I can change. These are the four main types of barrels that we use, and these are plexiglass heads so you can see the color. Because whiskey, as you add off the still, is completely clear, just like a gin or a vodka. Unless you add caramel coloring, whiskey gets all its color from the barrels. Wow. And uh, this is a new oak barrel, like I said, from Independence Day. So think about it like how you make tea at your house. So you have a cup of hot water with a fresh tea bag, you sleep it. Three or four minutes, you have a very strong tea. <laughs> very dark tea. Uh, and then you take that tea bag and put it in the second cup of hot water. Try to make a second cup of yeah, tea, yeah. and you're going to just keep it longer. It's not going to be as strong, and it's going to have a lighter color. So, first cup of tea. Well, you get each. Uh, you aged wild turkey in a previous life. Uh, and so you can see through the ex-bourbon, but yeah, you really have a hard time that. seeing through the new oak. And you actually can see the angel share happening, too. Yeah. And then these two are sherry casks, uh, an Oloroso hogshead and a Pedro Mena sherry butt. Ooh. Uh, because they age sherry in the Solera system, these are at least 100 years old, if not more. Um, and we actually import our barrels completely assembled. They're not broken down into saves. And we get them from uh, Tonalaria, I can never say it right, uh, Del Sur in Montilla, Spain. Uh, it's a cooperage that repurposes the sherry barrels, and so uh, they'll ship them to us. Um, and because we have them sent over completely assembled, they show up with a little bit of sherry still in them. Okay. As opposed to the staves being broken apart and then dried out, and then we don't get as much sherry influence. And because no one drinks sherry these days, uh, which is tragic. We're trying to prove <laughs> that. We like sherry. Thank you. I encourage everyone on tours, I'm like, drink more sherry, cook with sherry, yes. it's delicious. If you like so that you get more barrels that are cheap. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's, I think sherry's delicious. My, my favorite, I really like the Finos. Oh, wow. Because they're really light and chilled and you have to drink the whole damn thing in really one sitting. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise so, it starts to go bad. Which of these are really old barrels? These two? Yeah, these are probably the sherry 100 years old. This one's probably just a couple years old. This one's probably, you know, 10. Okay. You can tell that, that one looks super lush. Yeah, it's got a lot of patina. I mean, the, 
even the Oloroso, the little one here, it used to be a PX cast, but they would, what they do is they kind of repurpose them and cut them down into smaller size. Does that add a kind of a sweetness to it then? Um, the, the sherry? The, well, the, the, you said the PX, the Pedro Jimenez? Yeah, Isn't you that know, if you guys have had the PX, it's like really, really dark. It's, um, yeah, it's almost like chocolate notes and stuff like that. And the Oloroso is much fruitier and nuttier. And so we use both of them in equal amounts typically to get a more balanced sherry wood. Um, we have actually the largest stock of sherry barrels in the United States. No way. For distillery. Are you topping up during aging or is it just going down? Because you, So you're, you're not really concerned about oxygen influence? We want it. Uh, oh, you want you yeah. want oxygen. That's a, that's where whiskey gets a lot of its flavors because these barrels are uh, they're waterproof, but they're not airproof, and that's sort of the same reason why we age down in Hopeland because of that briny sea salt air. It's going to permeate the barrel and influence the whiskey. Does the light affect it at all? Like having these like plexiglass lights? We won't use these for production. These are kind of just nice demos. Yeah, we've definitely sampled these and the. Plexiglass is definitely influencing. Yeah. Um, if you have whiskey at your house, you know, don't keep it in the window. Light, just like beer, it's going to influence the UV rays. They're going to break it apart and damage the taste, just like I oxygen. Like the strange that people put lights up in their bars and they, you know, like the back of the bar is lit behind it with all the nice, you know, expensive whiskey there. Yeah, you, you want to keep your whiskey at home in a cool, dark place away from light uh, and away from heat. Um, and as you, you know, unlike wine, once the whiskey's out of the barrel and in a bottle, it's not going to change. Right. Unless it's oxidizing. in light. Unless yeah. That yeah. answers our question we had the other day Mackenzie. We were at a, uh, where were we? At a bar. Um, Ballard, I forget. And the question was brought up of, is light going to, because with like beer, mm -hmm. we were at Bitterroot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they have all the whiskey in the back window. In the back window. Yeah. Not ideal. And we're wondering if they could get light struck. And we're like, does that have a experience? Like, I don't know. Like, if so, then that probably changes the way that a lot of retailers or, you know, anyone kind of stores and displays there. Well, you have, hopefully they would be rotating the ones they're displaying. We're hoping that the top shelf stuff's out of the way of the, the sunlight. And yeah. the ones that are in the sunlight are ones that are going to be moving through a little quicker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually had one of the guys in my whiskey group, and he like texted me. He's like, "Light affects whiskey, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, you shouldn't keep it in light." He's like, "Oh, I'm at a bar right now, and like they have all the bottles like essentially in the window." Of the place. <laughs> well, like Bonds does. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's like that's like their thing. But it's the thing where it's like a consumer. Yeah. Probably yeah. would never understand no, the difference. Yeah, to a you know layman's not going to really care. They're going to think it looks pretty. Yeah, um, and, and, that's and, what and for the most part, you know, the bar might not even know either. Yeah. I, uh, for the longest time I bartended for years, uh, one of the last places aside from Noble Fur uh, was Eight Ounce up in Ballard. Sure. And uh, even on their whiskey menu, I kept prodding them. I'm like, you got to revamp this. It's totally wrong. Like, it says single malt and it has Johnny Walker. I'm like, it's not a single malt. Hmm. They're like, we don't care. Whatever. And it's like, whatever. Okay. It must be after food. Yeah. So then you're putting into barrel at either 110 or 125, and then you'll dilute, of course, to go in the bottle. Yep. Um, is that with water in Hoquiam or in Seattle? It's Hoquiam water. It's the 
one of the few times it's a small portion so we aren't really as concerned with it but it is a different water source but it is pretty minimal mm -hmm. i would imagine that it's it's good but so uh, it's seattle water that's doing the dilution to barrel proof mm -hmm. okay so there's two there's two dilutions happening yep and so like I was saying, you know, whiskey gets all its color from a barrel. Um, and I also touched upon the whole idea that an older whiskey doesn't mean a better whiskey. Um, in fact, you know, a 15-year whiskey might be half a barrel's worth. But as a business, you have to make up your costs. So even though you've lost half your product, you charge twice as much for the product you do have to make up your costs so you're not losing money. But it's also 15 years you're But people assume that because it's older that it means it's more expensive it must mean it's better and that's not necessarily the case right it's different yeah it's different um there's a book called tasting whiskey and it actually has sort of like lines on how grain cask and ester notes are influenced and change over the spectrum of aging on um, bourbons and on scotch whiskeys and bourbons age on a different curve than the scotch whiskeys which is why, you know, bourbons typically, like I was saying, are your strong, dark first cup of tea and your scotches are your second cup of tea. That's why you see bourbons that are typically aged between four and 10 years and scotch whiskeys that are aged, you know, eight years and beyond. Well, um, is that because of, I mean, because it's made corn mostly, so the corn doesn't necessarily like get prettier over time, like because of the viscosity, but it kind of just gets more like. Yeah, typically with, you'll, have uh, tannins leaching into the bourbon and affecting the taste. Sort of like if you oversteep a cup of green tea. Uh -huh. Same. That makes sense. Those are the same flavor compounds, tannins. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And they cause bitterness. With whiskey, it becomes over oak. It just tastes like wood chips. Uh -huh. uh, and so you can over oak a bourbon very easily. A lot of our whiskey, because it's in new oak and it's much more fragile, anything over four years really in our new oak barrels will over oak our malt whiskey. Hmm. Uh, we actually have had that problem uh, several times. So we have to harvest new oak barrels before they turn about four and a half. Which is why the stuff that's set aside for extended aging are going to be an ex-bourbon or second to a Westland casks or uh, sherry barrels. Um, and then once we age it, we will, most of our whiskey is going to be a blend of about 20 to 35 barrels. Our runs are pretty small compared to Jack or something like that. Um, we have a blending lab around the corner where Shane, our blender works, um, very sterile. Um, Yeah, let me see if he's in there. I don't want to bother him, but let me see if he's in there. Yeah, he's in there working. He's got his headphones in. But it's basically, uh, you can pop your head over here and take a look. But it's basically a, a, a sanitized sensory def def deprivation type of room. Uh, outside food smells don't influence them. Um, and so he's going to basically be uh, working with barrel samples from the rock house and blending them in a, in a manner he sees fit to build our blends. Yeah, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> What'd you get, Brian? It smells awesome. Uh, lake shake. Cafe Con Lake shake. Nice. Hi, buddy. It's okay. Does that have anything to do with it? Like, yeah. Um, what was the question you asked yourself? It's not. What was the question about methyl alcohol? Oh, in, um... In, like, wine making or beer brewing. Yeah. Is there not the concern of consuming 
so methyl alcohol. The idea that like you consume a lot of methanol or that there's a lot of methanol produced is actually sort of a misnomer. Uh, what you're smelling more is acetaldehyde than, than a, a methyl alcohol. Uh, and actually the, the fun one that I've heard is that that was a rumor spread during Prohibition uh, because people were dying from denatured alcohol that they were drinking and the government uh, didn't want them to know that they were denaturing the alcohol and so they just said there was methanol during dirty production. Uh, so you produce a very small amount okay, of methanol from from uh, from actual yeast fermentation. Uh, enough that like you would die of alcohol poisoning far before you got to methanol poisoning. Uh, but what you do get is ketones or uh, larger chain alcohols that someone uses to denature, that would cause you some serious sickness. Uh, I see. And that's coming through on the heads? Yeah. Yeah. But so in, heads, in heads wine and beer, maybe it's it's less concentrated yeah. than in a distillation? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like, uh, I mean, when you drink a beer, you're drinking a lot of water, right? If it's 5% ABV, it's 95% other stuff. Uh, and so you have to drink a lot of other stuff before you can get that one small percentage of, of acid aldehydes or methanol or anything that's not alcohol. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That's why I ask you the hard ones. Put me on the spot. Yeah, so we will do blends. Uh, Shane Toils back there through spreadsheets, uh, labeling each uh, barrel and taking notes on it and building blends based on uh, past uh, product. Um, and you can basically, like doing an American oak blend, you can kind of do in his sleep. Um, and he has a specific kind of way of doing things that's kind of backwards because he comes from a, a genetics background working in science, so he kind of uh, builds blends backwards. Right. <laughs> uh, in fact, the, actually, the, I in the little tours saying the, uh, the barrels holding up our handful one and two are actually the first two barrels we produced. Oh, no way. Yeah, in Scotland, you are supposed to set aside your first barrel to completely evaporate into angel's share as an offering to the gods for good luck and good fortune. Um, because we were so excited when we first started producing, uh, no one marked the first barrel. And so by the time we got to the third one, we remembered that you had to set aside the first, and no one marked it. So we had to set aside the first two so we could make sure that we set aside the first one. Awesome. Double our odds. There you go. But yeah, that's a, a brochure about the Single Malt Whiskey Commission that we're kind of working to lobby the government on the ways of... Trying to make that thing? Yeah. Yeah, so one thing. So, we'll start with a, a nice little tasting. Should we are you guys sit? Are you guys strapped for time at all or anything? I know I've been like rambling for close to um, two hours. I just have, I've worked in a little while, but I'm good now. I mean, like, basically. Okay, yeah, it's right so, um, when we're doing whiskey tastings, it's not like wine where you want to stick your nose in it because there's a higher concentration of alcohol. You know, 46% versus, you know, what, 12, 13% on wine. So you can actually scorch your nose uh, or your olfactory with too much ethanol vapor. Um, so you kind of want to take a little bit of a, a deep breath and exhale and then kind of start it at a distance. And you kind of want to work your nose into it, kind of exhaling, getting a free, uh, clean brush, breath of air without smelling again, and kind of eventually working your way in. And as you get closer, you'll pick out different notes. It's just like a wine tasting, really. It's just you want to be a, even when you've got your nose in the glass, you want to have your mouth open uh, to kind of get some uh, fresh air coming through your mouth to diffuse.
But this is the American oak uh, that you guys had when you showed up. Uh, it's the five malt grain bill uh, fermented using the Belgian Saison yeasts. And this version of American oak is 85% in new American oak barrels and 15% of it is uh, ex-bourbon. And we have little pitchers of water because adding, uh, this is the American oak. It was just on a Yes, yeah. So uh, what we want to do during whiskey tastings is you can add a drop of water and you see this oil slick that occurs. We're actually causing a chemical reaction within the whiskey. We're breaking apart chemical compounds and uh, mycelles are being released, uh, which are flavor compounds, fatty acids, lipids. And so it'll actually open your whiskey up. Adding room temp water to whiskey is like air to wine. Uh, conversely, we don't want a ton of air to get to our whiskey, uh, which is why when you have a bottle that's uh, down to here in your cupboard and you come back to it after a few weeks, it's gonna taste bad. It's because it's oxidized. Uh, air to whiskey is actually, after the aging process is finished, is an enemy. It'll change your whiskey in a bad way. Uh, so you actually uh, don't want, like if you have, uh, if you pay $200 for a bottle of whiskey and you have, you know, a quarter of it left in the bottle, I usually tell people transfer to a smaller bottle where you have more bottle and whiskey, less air, less air. People who keep their whiskey in like decanters, it's probably not. It's a bad idea, it's that. not wine. Yeah. Well, it's okay I mean, if you put the decanter on the windowsill though. Yes. It cancels out the... Well, I mean, yeah, like, it's still you know, negative. When you, like, you know, someone buys a bottle of whiskey and they think that their pretty little crystal decanter with like the you know, little topper on it is, you know, a better way to keep it because it makes it fancy. It's actually not right. Yeah. And you're infusing uh, lead into your beverage as well. Oh, if it's leather glass. Yeah. Right. I didn't even think about well, that, but yeah, that's totally though. true. Um, Leaded crystal. But okay. Interesting. But uh, yeah, you, do you guys do a, a chill filtration on the, the whiskey. We do not. We do not add caramel coloring. We do not chill filter, which is why our whiskeys, uh, our core range, are at 92 proof. Uh, if it gets below 92 proof, you have to chill filter it. Otherwise, it will haze or fog up. Um, because when you chill filter, you're stripping away uh, lipids and flavor compounds. Uh, and Matt is such a freak about flavor, like I said. Uh, we don't want that. Right. So if you keep it at 92 proof or above, you don't have to chill filter it and it won't cloud up. Makes sense. I've seen some, like Gordon McPhail's um, scotch that I think they buy barrels from distillers and age it in their own facilities and, and you'll see a little particulate matter in the... Yeah, in the there's nothing wrong with it. No. It's, it's really just uh, congealed lipids. Congealed lipids. It's <laughs> <laughs> not baptizing. <that> <laughs> we had some congealed yeah, lipids uh, at, we went to barbecue today for lunch. Where'd you guys go, Jack's or Pecos? Uh, Pecos. Jack's is better. <laughs> we'll go to Jack's next time. Can I ask you an unrelated question about the weddings here? My friend wants to get married here. <laughs> she told me to ask. What's the capacity? Uh, it should people? say in there. For people? I think it's just in there. I think it's like, 200 in the cask room if it's unseated or something like that. I mean, it's beautiful. Oh, wait. 150. Okay, there you Sorry, go. Uh, Is that a pretty uh, frequent social, thing? For social standing reception, yeah. as many as 350 can be yeah. There we go. Okay. Uh, Scott's driving a forklift. Um, 
So, uh, a cardinal sin when you're having the whiskey tasting is to add ice to your whiskey. Mm. Uh, just like it would be wine. Um, because cold constricts. So you're basically, instead of adding water at room temp to open your whiskey up, you're tightening it. So you're not going to be able to parse notes or flavors uh, because you're, uh, all your chemical compounds are going to tighten up instead of release. Uh, I know some people that, you know, are like, well, I use whiskey stones then. I'm not diluting it and it's still making, you know, it's making it a little... Same idea. Uh, it's a good way to chip the tooth. Oh. I mean, why would you put a rock in your glass and tip it back and have rocks flying in your teeth? And why, I mean, I just don't understand the whole whiskey rocks thing of like, you want a colder drink that's undiluted. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, have an old fashion. I, for for yeah. a long time, I didn't care for whiskey. I'm coming. I'm definitely coming around to it now. But mm -hmm. if I was gonna drink it, I would want it to be less. It's because it's, it's so potent and it's so intense and like the flavor is so strong that you know it just wasn't really what I enjoyed drinking. That I could see the the appeal of making it. You know, you can still taste it, but it's not quite as strong because it's not diluted. So I get it. But um, adding water is gonna do the greatest benefit. Yeah, that um, makes sense. I know blenders that, you know, will blend it, uh, keep adding water basically down to about 30% uh, or 60 proof. And that's, they say that's, you know, some guys will say, swear, so, that's when you can get the greatest amount of notes. So you can just kind of keep, keep adding or do you just kind of... You can keep adding water, like how much, especially how much like... Is too much, I mean, at some point, you know, it's going to be like... Yeah, at some point it's just going to be more water than whiskey, yeah. but... Uh, it's totally subjective. I mean, you can also use pipettes and just literally keep adding a drop or two. Um, you know, it, it's sort of like if I blindfolded you, handed you a bouquet of flowers and told you, you have to tell me what every flower in this bouquet is, you'd have a hard time doing it. But if you took that bouquet and pieced it out over a room and walked around the room, you'd still be, a, you'd be able to better define what each flower is. Yeah. You're creating space. And so, you know, adding water to whiskey is essentially the same thing. You're kind of creating space between your flavor. Um, and really a lot of your flavors are going to be parsed uh, via your nose. Uh, you know, your palate can pick up, you know, umami, sweet, sour, bitter, salt, you know, those, those main flavors in different combinations. Your nose is really going to be your main arbiter here. Even when you have, like, lemon in your mouth, you really, what you perceive as taste is actually part of the aromas going back through the back of your mouth and back still to your olfactory. Makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, fun, neat bit of history is the term rocks actually comes from when they used to, when they wanted a cold beverage, they would go to a, a stream that had little pebbles that were cold and they'd put the rocks in their glasses. Ah, hence, whiskey on the rocks. <laughs> they'd actually do that. So there's a historical precedent for That's it. where the name comes from. That rocks is just ice. Ice right. is a relatively new phenomenon uh, for the beverage industry. Uh, American in origin, you know, you once you saw the uh, the rails rail lines come of age in the late 1800s, uh, you know, you started seeing them truck. You had ice plants, and you had people that would uh, bring ice from frozen lakes up north down at the south where it was hot in the summertime. Uh, it's like ice houses where yep. they're insulated and exactly, uh, you know, mint julep, the official whiskey drink of the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like a snow cone nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's, like, piled. it's like crushed ice. Yeah, originally it was no, no ice whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, in, in, in May in mm -hmm. Kentucky, it gets damn hot. Yeah. Uh, and when you had the uh, 
ice being brought in. They started adding ice as relief during the summertime, and so that's what caused this uh, phenomenon that you now see in America, which is just, you know, especially in the South, you know, even up here we don't drink tons of ice and water. Uh, but, you know, that's where this whole drinking everything on the with, it's with ice. It's for people who want to get drunk and not taste what they're drinking. <laughs> yeah, that's why a lot of people do chill, chill shots of tequila or vodka. Yep. It just goes down. I've easy. never put a bottle of vodka in the freezer before. <laughs> but I mean, it's you know, you you go to a bar in Scotland and order a whiskey on with ice, and they're going to give you a cockeyed look. Uh, you order a whiskey and coke, they're really going to give you. A, uh, they'll bring you a glass of coke and a glass of whiskey. They will not put them together. It's <laughs> like a thing in the past about people ordering like lemonade or iced tea. Like you don't order. I don't know which one it is. I haven't been south, but my my mom and my brother went, and they were like, "Yeah, he ordered. I think it was lemonade. They were like, they just looked at it. They were just, That's just weird to me. I can imagine somebody ordered something, thinking, like, where are you from?'" <laughs> so this will be the second one. Have someone put Splenda in their vodka soda yesterday, and that was me. Like, I was like, "Oh God." Although for like a cocktail application, I think the dilution of the drink with ice helps to balance a recipe like that. Yep. But at that point you're you're not really tasting the nuances of the spirit. It's more of the cocktails, like the other ingredients. Yeah. The other ingredients combined I mean, together. The origin of a cocktail uh, comes from back in the day when it was originally intended to be a breakfast drink. You know, something that you know back in the day people drank straight spirits um, and blending them with other things wasn't something that was very common. Cocktails were a way to have your spirit but not to just go full bore into a neat pour for breakfast because while we are a, quite a Puritan based country, you know, back in the day we used to drink, before Prohibition, we used to drink a hell of a lot more. Um, people, you know, just like in France, you know, have wine with lunch and stuff like that. Here in America, that's kind of, you got a problem. Um, yeah, but uh, cocktails were originally designed to be a beverage drink in the morning, hence the tale of a cock or the rooster. Um, and so they were designed to be a lighter alternative to drinking straight whiskey for breakfast. That's funny. Cocktail for breakfast. Cocktails for breakfast. Doesn't it? So this, is a, so this is the Sherrywood whiskey. Uh, it's the, it's uh, part of it's aged in New Oak, part of it's aged in Oloroso and Pedro Amina sherry casks, and part of it is aged in New Oak and then finished in those casks. A uh, lot more going on on the nose. Um, so the, this is invoking the style of like a space side malt. Yeah, like a Macallan or something like that. Glen Farkless. Apparently, McAllen owns a sherry bodega for their cast. Oh yeah, I usually mention, yeah, that's usually a tidbit I throw on. But you guys drank sherry, so I didn't go on that tirade. But I was like, how many people? I usually like, how many people drink sherry? And no one raises their hand. I'm like, yeah, it's causing a, you know, no one's drinking sherry. It's really you know, hard times for the sherry industry. Uh, and McAllen saw this problem on the horizon years ago and bought a whole sherry company so they could pour right. barrels. Well, and a lot of times the wine, the sherry wine is discarded. It's just so that... They dump it. Yeah. Which is tragic. Which is why I encourage everyone to drink more sherry. Or it goes into like sherry brandy. You know, they, they yeah. distill it. But, 
But yeah, this is our sherry wood. I love this. The, the real kicker yeah. is it's the exact same whiskey you just had. It's just we changed one little step. Yeah, but it makes such a big difference. So same mash bill. Like same, same exact mash bill. You're doing exact, the five. Same exact cut points, same exact yeast. Um, in fact, you know, hypothetically, you know, what you're drinking in this American oak, uh, one barrel could be off the same distillate the same day as part of the sherry wood. Like, composition-wise, they're both the same whiskey. We just basically changed one teeny uh, fractional component, uh, which is the barrel it was aged in, and it imparts a totally different nose, a totally different palate. Some people think it, it's smoother, some people think it has more depth, other people are more acclimated to the ways of bourbon and think the American oak is that way. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's completely subjective, you know. You might think that American oak is smoother. Um, some people who are sitting right next to them might feel the sherry woods, but they're, it's just a good demonstration in how our bodies and how biology and how we perceive and sense things. To me, it's very medicinal. I, I don't know if that's something that's coming get, through. That's what I get from peat. Right, I know. Yeah. I mean, but I don't. Like what kind of medicine? Well, more like it's like a bit. I'm t I am tasting or smelling band-aid kind of. Or or sulfur. Maybe it's I'm getting sulfur. You might have a little bit, uh, partly because of the sherry. I mean, that's why wine contains sulfites. Right, there's a lot of sulfur. And just kind of saltiness. Salt air. It's like just more... I, I get what you're saying. I get that medicinal note too, but it's kind of like, it's also a little bit more caramely to me. It's a little bit like richer. But I do get kind of like a parchment paper note, but like uh, when you're when you're unwrapping a, a bandage or something, like it's not like a used bandage or anything, but kind of just like a, mm -hmm. a, a toasty note. I think it's more yeah. of a barrel note. I can see that. But a lot of fruit and uh, even herbaceous notes there. Yeah, sometimes I get dried fruit, maple syrup, oatmeal raisin cookies. Yeah. yeah, raisins. To me, it just reminds me of like when I was a kid and I would get like sun-made raisins as a snack and just open the box. Oh, yeah. Or Pedro Jimenez, that makes sense. Yep. Raisinated wine. Yep. Yeah, some of the past blends of Sherrywood, uh, previous iterations, have had different uh, levels of particular sherries. The original Sherrywood, this was never intended really to be, if you ask Matt Hoffman, uh, our Sherrywood whiskey was never intended to be a permanent fixture in our core line. It was uh, kind of a one-off, uh, and it was so popular that we just continued making it, and it finally became a part of our core whiskey line. Yeah. Uh, the, the early iterations of Sherrywood were actually very heavy on the PX and much lighter on the uh, Oloroso, mm -hmm. and so you would get dark chocolate on the finish. Yeah. Um, and then, in several versions, you see a more, it's been this push-pull with Oloroso and PX, where sometimes you get more Oloroso, and now it's kind of become a bit more balanced. Um, previous versions can be a little fruitier or a bit more chocolatey. 
And this is the first version that I was talking to Shane about it. He's like, this is the first time I've really experimented with sherry finishing as opposed to just exclusive aging in the sherry barrels, um, which I think is good because it kind of makes it a bit more static and has a bit more just more balance to it to me. Mm -hmm. You were saying that you get the barrels whole from, um, was it Morales? Uh, Tunneleria del Sur in oh. Montilla, Spain. Montilla. Montilla, Um, and, and I'm assuming that's probably more difficult and perhaps even more expensive to get the whole barrels versus... Yeah, we uh, kind of bite the bullet in terms of uh, shipping them over because yeah. you pay for volume on a boat. And, right. Uh, you know, to us, we would rather pay the added cost and actually have the influence, better influence and better tasting product. Mm -hmm. Um, then breaking them apart and having to reassemble them. When you use the sherry um, casks, do you use them once and then discard them, or do you? Continue? We'll use them until we basically have like a catastrophic leak. Yeah. <laughs> do you find that it still imparts sherry flavors into the spirit, um, mm -hmm. even to the end? Yeah, it just becomes, uh, you know, it's just like the the bourbon barrels. It's just right. You get a different profile and it's not of as course. strong. Um, it's going to be different every time. Yeah. Um, barrel and for the I think this might be the first year that we actually get a contract finalized with Tunneleria, um, where we have defined amounts of, we need 100 PX barrels and 100 Oloroso barrels. Before that, we were kind of, we didn't have a contract, so they would just send what they could spare, which last year kind of kicked uh, kicked us in the butt because we received like 60 px barrels and 10 oloroso and it got really out of balance and it's because you know we didn't have a contract with them so they could just ship us whatever they had left uh and we start and now with remy we have the finances to be able to secure a, to put forward a contract with them and that way it's like we can actually start getting even amounts yeah because i was talking to scott and he's our distillery manager we were talking to a minute ago uh, He's like, you know, now in the rack house in a couple of years, I'm going to have tons of PX that are ready to go, and I don't have any Oloroso to balance them out. Like, what are we going to do there? Uh, and so that's just something on the pending horizon that we're going to have to kind of come up with a creative solution for. How big was the Remy sale? No one knows. I, I know that High West was acquired by, I think it was Constellation. Yep. For 160 million? 162 or something like that, something yeah. Like that? Yeah, I'm not sure what we got bought for. Uh, yeah. Those are, even I don't know. No one has revealed it, and all of us were kind of curious and trying to hint uh, and find out, and I don't think anyone knows for sure, except Matt and Andrew. Yeah. There's a, a lot of big sales going on in the wine world, too, of like Charles Smith just sold yeah. some of his brands for 120 million. And, Lose my mind. This one I saw recently. I have to catch the light rail in a couple minutes. Okay. Thanks well, for joining us. I'll give you yeah. the, the spiel on this one then. It's cool. uh, a peated whiskey, it's a different grain bill. It's 47% peated malt that we get from the Highlands and 53% Washington Select Ale. Part of it's in new oak, part of it's in expert. 
So none of this is repeated from like um, the Washington. It's not our page yet. Uh, we just did you just like, started doing that. Yeah, we did Got it. runs of it all of October. So okay. we just started that. It'll be fun to try to this out. A lot of messages regarding work right now. Not to be afraid. Just got an email from Aaron. I liked it. Hey, Camus? One drop. So, I promise I'll show you peace. Oh, wow. So that's when you dig it out. And this is when you dry it out. And that's actually the peated malt. Uh, you that's guys saw it when it was milled. Uh, that's as is before it's ground. So you can open that up and kind of smell it too. Yeah. Especially you guys coming from oh my goodness. the barbecue. Yeah. yeah. Same, same idea. Yeah, I was like, I want to go back and eat more barbecue now. That's what I usually tell people that haven't had uh, peated whiskeys or have had them and didn't like them. I'm like, pretend you're eating like some brisket. Yeah. It's going to pair really nicely with it. Yeah, totally. But our peated whiskey, because it's on. Um, uh, you know, it's designed to be an approachable peated whiskey for American palates. Like I was saying, Americans typically don't drink peated whiskeys. Yeah. I'm working on it. I have a goal to like everything. Well, I mean, it's almost like IPAs. Like, if you're not used to drinking hoppy beers, you're not going to go in and have a double IPA and really dig on it. It's, you have to work your way up the ladder. Um, yeah, it's a like so, required thing. Yeah. yeah, and so I usually say, you know, start with um, a space side that's been peated, and space side, peated space sides are really mild and approachable, or are peated is, and you can get into highlands and start working your way into the islas. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. like starting with a pilsner and then getting used to a pale ale and then getting used to like a session IPA and then an IPA and then you can really get into the weird stuff. It's a process of acquiring the taste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the first time I ever had pho, you know, 15 years ago, I didn't like it. And now I love pho. What's and that to love? Yeah, but it's just like, an, I wasn't used, to, I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, <laughs> well, I had that problem with flavors. a lot of things, um, you know, talking about like how we sense and perceive things. I didn't like pho for the longest time and I found out what it was. I can't taste cilantro. Oh, yeah. You can't taste kind of it, a soapy. Like it. I didn't, what I perceive as cilantro is not what everyone else tastes. It's that genetic. Everybody's like genetic soap. soap. Do yep. basic soap, yeah. And I didn't know how to put it, and then I found out about it. I was like, so that's why I don't like street tacos. Ah. So I started ordering them without the cilantro on top, and it's like, oh yeah, I totally get behind this or pho. I just don't add. I don't add the cilantro. I'm fine. But actually, I started. I'm kind of not headed, so I, I just started ordering everything with cilantro and trying to force myself to get used to it. And I'm just like, <laughs> and just grin and bear it. Did it ever work? I can kind of, I deal with it. I sense that soapiness and I know cilantro is in it. And I'm like, I don't hate it now. I just know cilantro is in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a matter of getting acclimated to it. Sure. Mmm. When I say I want to like everything, I want to be able to appreciate everything for what it is. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I don't want to just write something off because I've decided I don't like them, put it in a box and leave it there. I kind of want to, I'm always like reintroducing it to myself, you know, like maybe, maybe I'll come around to it or maybe I'll develop some kind of a different, you know, understanding or appreciation of it. So I'm always trying to like constantly, you know, be trying it again. So this is good. This is like a good 
like you said, like a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. Yes, a dip in the toe in the water. It. I don't mind it. <laughs> So we've done, I think this is our fifth field trip. Oh, what was the first one that we did? Pike Place Market, mm -hmm. Awajamaya. Mm -hmm. Sabi, Charles Smith, which I didn't think to do. Charles Smith, Holy Mountain. Holy Mountain so this is our sixth one. And I think I have learned more at this one this than This has been the most informative. So far. The most in-depth, thorough, and like visually Really well. cool. We pride ourselves on our experience here. You should. And we're working on even making it better. Yeah. Um, and you know, with the Remy acquisition, we um, the the production side went over to Isla because Brooklotti is our sister distillery now, and so they spent a week over there at Brooklotti seeing how they do things. Um, Phoebe, our front of house. My boss, uh, she actually went to Isla and then had to take off for a few days and she went to Cognac to uh, see how Remy Martin does their experience. And it's like, whole, it makes us look like a walk in the like we're joking. Their stuff is like so serious. Um, and so, you know, there's, we're working on stepping things up even more. Um, but I mean, that's way down the line. Yeah learning something every every day and trying to well, that's great that you guys um, have places like that to look to and to you know to find ways to be better and going to some of the best places in the world to to get that inspiration yeah um, I don't think a lot of other you know, local distilleries take that type of initiative so yeah and you guys so. because you know you guys are excited about it you want to learn more about it you know you typically can get tours done in about half the time um, especially when I like start reading body language and it's kind of like this it's like looking around and I'm like all right you guys just wanted to be here for the tasting let's just kick through this yeah, but you guys got the full like senior level well thank you for taking the time oh really appreciate it answering all of our questions my pleasure I uh, enjoy it do you have a card I do both my parents were professors, so I guess it's that. And an educational passing on of wisdom. You're welcome. Is it McCohen or McCowan? Uh, I think it's McCohen, really. Scotch-Irish. My Midwestern roots, everyone calls it McCowan, but I'm like, I don't know anyone in Scotland or Ireland who pronounces uh, col uh, cow. It's not a pretty common vowel sound. It's so kind of like Santa yeah, I think McCohen. it's... McCohen, McCohen. Yeah, it would be like a, a softer O, so I usually go by McCohen, but uh, my brother and I got into a spat over the holidays. It's like, why are you pronouncing it that way? I'm like, it's the proper way, man. Potato, potato. Potato, potato. To me, it's not. But who actually says potato, really? People who can't speak. <laughs> that's, that's always my Who says potato? So, I'll give you guys one last little... Ooh. This is the hand fill. So it's the, the hand fill from your there. original barrel. Yeah, the barrel around the corner. Oh wow! So it's 117 proof. It was barreled at 110 because it aged in our cask room, climate controlled, lost water instead of alcohol, so it is now 117. Wow! Uh, it aged 24 months in the cask room, 17 months down in hoquium. Uh, I think hoquium led it to have that musty nose that it has. Um, but because it's a heavily toasted barrel and a lightly charred, you do have a lot of wood sugars prevalent in it. And adding a few drops of water will definitely 
help because it is cask strength, so it hasn't had any water added to it aside from when it was barreled. So it's really gonna open up a ton when you add a drop of water. Wow, like a lot of toffee, caramel. Yeah, it reminds me oh of- gosh, uh, I like this one the best so far, this is great. My aunt always used to go to the state fair and buy this one type of taffy. It was vanilla taffy. And to me, I get, I tasted it one day and I was like, all of a sudden I was like six years old back at the state fair and I was like, this is exactly what it tastes like, it's vanilla taffy. Yeah. Wow, that's killer. Are these for sale? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you fill your own bottle. Really? Oh, cool. You're geeking out right now. I'm out. How much is that? Uh, 55. 55 for the half. That's really good. That'd be a fun, that'd be a really cool gift for someone too. Yeah, we have a, there's a realtor that will periodically come in and he'll buy one when someone closes on the home and that'll be their housewarming gift. So he'll have like their closing date on it and give it to them as a gift. You guys want to go in on a half that we kind of own collectively? Yeah. yeah. That we we can only drink when we're together. Yes. That sounds great. That sounds fun. Okay. You can put our names on it. We can put our names on it. You get to sign it. You got to take turns filling it. I'm. You got to sign it. I, I just kind of I observe and manage you. Yeah, guys. but you, you can sign the the bottle for us. So. Yeah. You know, have give it. Give us your your John Hancock. The Herbie Hancock. Cool. Do you, do you sell um, the glasses? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have branded uh, Glen Cairns. My really good friend, she did an event yesterday called Whiskey and Rocks, and she did it at the top of the Insignia Tower. She works for Blue Nile Diamond, and she said that you guys uh, donated the whiskey for it. So she's, oh, like, nice. she's the one that wants to, she was like, check out the room, see if it's someplace I could get married. <laughs> so she, I know she loves it here, and the guy that she's with, um, talks about this place all the time, so I think that might be like a really cool birthday gift for Yeah, we do a lot of weddings, um, mm -hmm. especially like starting here in the next week or two, it really starts kicking into start high wedding season. Wedding season. Yeah. And that's an extra kind of source of, of revenue that you guys have, just to make yeah. use of the space. Beautiful and space. It's gorgeous. Why wouldn't you use it? Yeah. How much are the glasses? Like a set? Um, I think a single one is eight to like they shave 50 cents off, you get four, and I think they're like six a piece, something like that. You get a four pack? Yeah. Cool. Four pack. We can do that. Well, Dave, I really appreciate all the time that you oh, put into my pleasure. showing us around today. Yeah, not a problem. Matt said to take care of you guys, and I was told him.